Dan Norton here. I just wanted to let podcast listeners know that, due to an audio problem, only my side of the conversation can be heard in the first three and a half minutes. Most of that time, I am talking. During the 40 or so seconds in which my interlocutor cannot be heard, he asks me about my educational background and about how many objectivist professors there are in universities. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. So um, about my philosophy, one thing I'll say is I call myself an objectivist, not a libertarian. A lot of people who come across me think of me as a libertarian and label me that sometimes. So let me just say a couple things about why I, I use the term objectivist instead First of all, objectivism is an entire philosophy. It's not just the political philosophy. So it encompasses views in metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, as well as politics, aesthetics as well. It has distinctive views there. So it's not just a political philosophy. It's an entire worldview. Another key distinguishing characteristic um, is it's uh, it's not an anarchist political philosophy. A lot of people who call themselves libertarians uh, endorse some form of anarchy. I think sometimes they call themselves anarcho-capitalists, which I think might be a contradiction in terms. So I want to clearly distinguish myself from those sorts of people. Now, some people who use the term libertarian may use it in a way that is consistent with a, a government, but uh, just to keep it clear or eliminate confusion. I, um, and for accuracy, I, I think uh, objectivist is the best term for my view. So if there's a little about why. I do. I also have a PhD in philosophy and a master's in philosophy. <laughs> yeah. Very few. I think there are some that have existed. There are some objectivist professors, for instance, Tara Smith at the University of Texas at Austin. There was Alan Gotthelf, who taught at the uh, College of New Jersey and the University of Pittsburgh, Jim Lennox, Daryl Wright. So there were, there were some objectivist professors scattered here and there, but they're definitely by far the minority uh, as for how I came across it, it was before I entered university, actually right after I finished high school, my brother had recommended I read Ayn Rand and I, I checked her books out right after I finished high school that summer between high school and college. And that's when I started reading her. So it wasn't through inner uh, university that I got to know her. It was just on my own, but I, I loved her ideas. I was just blown away by them and I thought they made a lot of sense. So I just continued to study them, uh, in large part on my own, although I have also taken courses through the Ayn Rand Institute, which is a separate think tank, um, not affiliated with the university, but they offer courses in her philosophy. 
So I took several years, many years of uh, courses there, and uh, I continue to study the philosophy on my own. Okay, we have a technical issue. I may have just fixed it. Now, chat, um, they can't hear me apparently. So I just changed something in OBS. Can someone in chat tell me if it's working now? Because this will be uh, <laughs> kind of a waste of a debate if they no one can hear. Okay, it should something is looks like it's working on my screen. Okay, thank God. Okay, we, we're good. They can hear me. Uh, um, sorry, I, I I didn't really catch all of that um, <laughs> because I was so uh, worried about the audio here. Um, That's all right. Okay, Do you so, want, we can repeat any of that that you you want to. I mean, they heard you fine. Um, okay. It's just that me, I was a little distracted. Um, okay, so, uh, sorry, can you just uh, remind me where you were introduced to it? Now, was it in university or was it outside? It was outside university right before I started university. So that summer in between high school and college is when I first read Ayn Rand. My brother had recommended it to me, so I read it on his recommendation and I, I loved it. I continued studying it largely on my own, although I also had taken classes at the Ayn Rand Institute in her philosophy. Okay. Uh, what's the Ayn Rand Institute? It's a think tank. It was started in 1985, a few years after Ayn Rand died. And its mission is to advance her philosophy, spread awareness and understanding of it. And they have a variety of programs uh, which they use to do that. Uh, they have an essay contest, uh, international essay contest on her books. So there's cash prizes for kids who around the world who want to read her books, write an essay on it, and maybe win some money. And they've got college campus clubs around the world. They've got um, they have media outreach that they do, and they also offer courses, some of which I took. And they, they do other things as well, but th those are some of their core core activities. Okay, so this was like right before you, in between high school and university that uh, you, you came to uh, to read some Ayn Rand and get into it, uh, recommended by your brother. What, okay, what what drew you to like this whole, you know, philosophy of self-interest and, uh, you know, non-aggression principle and, and kind of capitalism is, is the ultimate beacon for freedom? What drew you to that? Well, I thought Ayn Rand's ideas made sense. So I didn't really have any particular viewpoint prior to reading her. I wasn't very aware politically. Uh, so in many ways, she was my introduction to the field of politics and economics. And I had some, I guess, some vague, vague understanding of those fields, but I hadn't really thought about them much at all. But uh, when I read her works, I thought they made a lot of sense. They cohered with the observations I had made about the world. Um, you know, to this extent, I had made any by this age. You know, I was re relatively young, seventeen, almost eighteen. And what kind, um, of, what kind of observations did you did, were confirmed in uh, in the book? I guess it was maybe more in the. Um, in the ethical realm and in the political, because I, as I said, I wasn't very aware politically of what was going on, but just ethically, 
um, I mean, she she makes this case that egoism is good, and that's altruism, which or self sacrifice is is bad and is doing a lot of damage to the world. Uh, and so I guess one, one thing that I had a sense of is that altruism was sort of a dominant, uh, moral viewpoint that a lot of people, if they didn't follow it, they'd at least pay lip service to it mm-hmm. and they held it up as some kind of moral ideal. And if, you know, a good person is considered like Mother Teresa, someone who's you know, living their lives for the sake of others. And I remember on my college applications, I think one of the questions on one of the schools I applied to said, like, well, who are the people you admire and look up to or like who are your heroes or something like that? And I think I actually included Mother Teresa as as one of the people. <laughs> uh, no, I've heard some of his videos, but I haven't actually read them. Have you heard about what he thinks about Mother Teresa? Uh, I think I might have heard he had a pretty negative view, but <laughs> correct. yes, is that understating it radically? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've heard some things have come out about her maybe after she died that uh, made her appear uh, quite bad, but I, I haven't looked into those. But anyways, a lot of what people admire her for, for you know, I don't know what the reality of it was, but at least what she kind of symbolized was self-sacrifice and living for the sake of others. And I, I wasn't raised religiously myself. I was in a pretty secular household, but I think that altruist morality or this morality of self-sacrifice still can affect people um, just in the culture. I think um, maybe post-Kant, Immanuel Kant, uh, the philosophy of altruism or self-sacrifice has been secularized. And maybe I just picked that up to some extent from the culture. Um, So even if you're not a religious person, you can still pick up this um, religious and origin morality of self-sacrifice. And I think I did that to some extent are you religious? And uh, no, I like I didn't I, I didn't believe in a god growing up. Uh, I never went to church. My family didn't really uh, speak about it, um, so I wasn't religious in any overt, uh, obvious way. But I think I still picked up from the culture this religious morality. I think Christianity has had a huge influence on the culture. So even if you're not raised in a religious household, you still get exposed to it somehow. I think the ideas of Christianity, of, of altruism, of self-sacrifice, um, are still around in the culture. You know, don't be selfish. Pretty much everyone hears something like that. It's better to be selfless, um, give back, th- th- these kinds of things you hear, you know, whether or not you're religious, so you can still pick up this sort of morality. And I think I was... Not hugely influenced by that, but to some degree, I think I was. And I I thought Ayn Rand uh, gave a good analysis of that and how there's not really any good reason to accept it. So, uh, I don't know if that answered your question. You asked, like, what what in her works did I find confirming? Um, But I, I think one of the... I guess just to put it more briefly is her her identification of the prevalence of altruism was one thing that I thought uh, that resonated with me. It seemed plausible. And then her arguments against it, which I hadn't really heard because I think those are much less uh, 
known in the culture. I thought her arguments against it made sense, and her arguments for egoism made sense. But also her arguments for other things, too, like capitalism. Um, but I guess in my own experience, I was more attuned to the ethical issues because I just wasn't very aware politically in those uh, young years. Um, but definitely the, the ethics resonated with me, and her, I thought she was also very logical and the way she thinks about things and writes about things. So I liked her way of thinking. Um, and I think that, that impacts everything she touches, you know, whether it's ethics or politics or aesthetics. Um, I liked her way of approaching issues. So, um, so where, where, does, where do you think altruism comes from? If, it, if, this, is, if this is some kind of evil or, or thing we don't want to, we don't want to have. Or don't want to emphasize so first of all i think it's just we should be clear on what altruism means or at least how she is understanding it so she understands it as self-sacrifice in other words or putting others interests ahead of your own interests so it's not just being kind towards other people or being benevolent towards other people i think those are perfectly compatible with egoism it's actually in your own interest i think to be kind and benevolent towards other people, to respect other people's rights. If you're a jerk to other people, you know, they're not going to want to be your friend. They're not going to want to be your romantic partner, for instance. So I think it's in your interest to be, uh, to treat others well. That's not what altruism means, at least as she understands it. She understands it as sacrificing your own interests for the sake of others, putting others interests ahead of your own. So, for instance, um, if, if you have a child and your neighbor also has a child and uh, you have a choice, you know, am I going to spend my money on my own child or the, the neighbor's child and say you only have enough money to buy food for one of them? Well, the really moral thing to do if you're an altruist and you believe in the morality of self-sacrifice is to give up what's personally valuable to you, which is, let's say, your own child, and then support the other child support you know something that's not a direct benefit to you that would be selfish the self-sacrificial thing is to help the other child now that would be an, an instance of altruism as ayn rand is is uh, understanding it and that's what she rejects she thinks there's there's no reason to uh, put others interests ahead of your own uh there's uh there's every reason to put your own interests first that doesn't mean violating the rights of others. She thinks you should respect the rights of others, but um, you should do so because it's in your own interest to do so. I, I just had a talk with another person. Uh, I think the, the latest video on my YouTube channel it has a large section about why, or I was debating this person, last username is, is the guy's name, on uh, why or whether it's in your own interest to respect other people's rights. So there's a long discussion of that in my latest video on my YouTube channel, which if I can put in a quick plug just to let people know what it, they, what it is, if they want to check it out, youtube.com slash Dan Norton one, you can find it that way. Or you can search for the selfishness project. I have a lot of videos on my channel about the topic of selfishness. So if you put in selfishness project in the search engine, that's an easy way to find my YouTube channel. Okay. So uh, I have gone on for a while here, but I, I don't want to ramble. Um, <laughs> you had asked about like 
about altruism and I, I forget your original question. I don't know if you want to go back to that. Um, or go I, I, I asked direction. where where does altruism come from? Oh, where does it come from? I, I, I was I was just saying that what it is, first of all. Now, where does it come from? So what it is is, in Ayn Rand's view, is placing others' interests ahead of your own. Where does it come from? I think it might come from uh, mysticism. Like I think it was used by, uh, at least this is a plausible story. I have another video about this as a tool of exploitation. So if you can convince people that the moral thing to do, at least in this life, is to put others' interests ahead of your own, and if you can sell them on the on the idea or the myth that there's an afterlife in which you will be rewarded then you might be able to get them to sacrifice themselves at least in this life in a way you're still appealing to their self-interest because you're you're telling them you know in the, in the next life you'll get 72 virgins you know or you'll you know have uh you'll you'll be in in eternal bliss in heaven um but if you can convince people that um, you know, in this life, the, the good thing to do is to sacrifice themselves, maybe bring offerings to the temple or give up your firstborn son or whatever, sacrifice your best goats. Um, then, you know, the people who convince you of this can basically live as a parasite on you. So if you're a temple priest, you're receiving all the offerings that people bring to the temple. You you receive their sacrificial offerings. Well, now you can just, you don't have to do any work. You can just live off the work of others and raising their goats or their wheat or whatever they bring, to whatever their sacrificial offering is, and uh, you don't have to do any work. So um, I think that's that could explain what gave rise to this this altruist self-sacrificial sort of morality. Some people trying to take advantage of others, exploit them, um, and then I guess. Uh, Faith, I think, goes hand in hand with this because there, is, there really is no logical, rational reason that someone should do this. So you have to resort to mysticism and convince someone that there's some kind of supernatural afterlife that they will somehow end up in and benefit in. Um, you just have to take it on faith, right? That's why I think um, a lot of religions, faith is essential to them because there is no rational reason to do the things they tell you to do, to sacrifice yourself. <clears throat> But if you can get someone to throw off their minds, to abandon their reason, then you can get them to do all kinds of things they wouldn't otherwise do. So I think that's uh, at least part of significant, maybe the main part of how I would explain you know, why something like altruism and the sense of self-sacrifice came to be. Okay, so let me, let me start by uh, agreeing with you. Uh, you know, as a, as a Marxist, actually, I... I very much agree that you should put your own interests as um, I mean, it, and it only makes sense to put your own interests as a as a you know working class person um, first, because you you da you you damn well know that the uh, you know the ruling class, the capitalists, are going to put their own interests at first, and they are not not uh, your interests. At least that that's what all I argue. Um, so yeah, you definitely want to do that. And even on the personal level, like your example before, I, I agree with you there where you said, um, if you have a choice between feeding yourself and feeding your neighbor's kids or whatever it is, I actually have, 
that exact example has come up in my own life. I have a friend who is basically doing that and is like funding other people that she's not responsible for. Um, and I'm like, and I, it frustrates me a lot. I try to, uh, you know, you, you'd think a socialist might not argue that, but I was very much trying to get her to, you know, to put her own, uh, her own interest in her own life uh, ahead of, and, and that, you know, if she wants, if she really wants to help these people out, there's other, there's better ways to do it than just throwing your money away and making yourself, uh, putting yourself in a, you know, a worse position. Um, and uh, yeah, I agree that uh, altruism, um, putting putting the uh, the kind of sacrificing yourself for the group is is very handy for cults, especially um, for and for, for religion. Um, and um, but uh, you, you can also there's also a way to think about. I mean, I, I think that the the binary between altruism and and, and selfishness is a very kind of it's not a very strong one. Um, or, or at least it's not a very enlightening one. Um, from my perspective, it doesn't tell you much about society, and I don't think it really helps us plan a good society. Um, I know Ayn Rand feels differently. Um, you mentioned that, uh, you know, you, you hear people say, don't don't be selfish, um, and that's true. Um, but, like, I asked you where that comes from, um, and you gave an answer, but I think there are there's kind of more material roots at hand. I don't know how familiar you are with anthropology, like human anthropology, um, but I mean, even, uh, primitive societies today, like display, um, it's, I, I wouldn't call it, call it altruism, but they very much, um, it's in their interest or they find it in their interest to share everything they get. Um, this is because resources are scarce. And, uh, the moment you start having somebody become selfish or hoard, hoard, uh, you know, the scarce amount of resources, uh, that becomes a threat to the entire tribe. Um, and, you know, humans are, uh, we're smart, but we're vulnerable, weak animals. Uh, we don't do well on our own, um, and we're social creatures, which, um, and, and the funny thing about that is, you know, around each other, uh, you know, sharing and sacrifice, maybe not sacrifice, but, uh, you know, anytime you have something, let's say you made a kill, you will, uh, you will try your hardest to not be brag about it and you'll share, share with everybody else. But if you, let's, but if you, let's say you're, uh, you're out in the forest and you find some, a gold mine of, uh, of berries by yourself. Well, you're going to share those with your, your tribe, but those people are actually more likely than us in capitalist society to, to steal more for themselves because they're so used to being in a society where all they do is is share and give to others and uh, and help the community that when they get the opportunity to be selfish they actually take more advantage uh, more advantage of it than us because in our society we're competitive with each other we're uh, we're very individualistic um, just that's just the nature of uh, you know bourgeois capitalist um, society and so when we get the opportunity to be uh, to be, um, uh, you know, to sacrifice or to give to others, we're actually a bit more giving because we're not used to doing it as much. Um, so, so my point is, is really that there's material roots to these behaviors, what you call altruism and, um, and, or, or selfishness. Um, you know, so like, of course it's all humans have the capacity 
for both, right? It, it, it's not one or the other. Um, and society really wouldn't make, or human society wouldn't have gotten anywhere, wouldn't have evolved to where it is if, uh, if it didn't have the capacity for both. If we didn't work together, we would have got nowhere. Um, you know, everything, everything uh, even in a hyper-capitalistic hyper, uh, society with limited government, nothing was, would get done on, without people working together, right? You, building houses, uh, you know, materials shipped from all across the world, um, uh, food distribution, like things don't work unless we do them together in an organized way. So we are social in that, uh, in that aspect. It doesn't necessarily mean we are actually sacrificing though, or being altruistic because all these things are actually in our interests. Um, and the last thing I'll say is, um, you mentioned, um, you know, how re religion, um, uses altruism. And you know so the sacrifice of the self for a, you know a greater good after after life, and basically end up with uh, people accepting their own kind of uh, slavery in a in a feudal system or whatever. Um, well, I would argue the same thing applied to capitalism because the justifying ideology for for capitalism for a long time in England uh, where it started, and uh, and I believe Netherlands because they were both uh, Protestant. Uh, was the Protestant work ethic, which uh, Max Weber outlined famously, um, and that was kind of the whole. The, the church was pushing pushing this idea of, of you know, work is good, uh, and this is something that, you know, so people working 12, 14 hour shifts in the factories were internalizing, um, and so that they, they it would pacify them, uh, and this is something capitalism very much. Uh, took advantage of and promoted for its own benefit in order to grow. Um, and I mean, we haven't gotten into capitalism yet, but uh, I'll just let you respond to that. Okay. Let's see. So the issue of selfishness, like the issue of altruism is one, I think we should be clear on what's meant by that. So just as altruism as Rand understands, it doesn't just mean doesn't mean just being kind or benevolent to others. So selfishness doesn't mean what people often take it to mean, which is violating others' rights, being a jerk, Not necessarily. Uh, treat, treating people unfairly. Uh, all of these things are actually not in your self-interest. So what she takes selfishness to mean is simply being concerned with your own interests. And she thinks you're actually harming your own interests if you are a jerk to others, if you violate others' rights, as I mentioned before, and I gave some examples of that. Uh, so that's that's one point. Now, you, so you mentioned the thing about sharing, like in a tribe, if you're, you might share berries or something if you find them. Now, I so in her sense, that's uh, of these terms. That's not necessarily an altruistic, unselfish thing to do. That could be sharing could be a selfish thing to do in her sense because it could be your, in your own interest to be part of a tribe that's flourishing. Because you know, if if you if you don't help your fellow tribesmen to do well, and they end up dying, and then you're left all alone then you have fewer people to help you out in tough times. And that's just one example. So it's not necessarily altruistic to, to share the berries. It could be selfish uh, 
to, to do that. Okay. And now, um, on the, on capitalism, so that's come up now. That's another term, which the meaning of, of it, I think, needs to be made clear because I think it's often, uh, distorted and strawmanned. Uh, for instance, today, I would say we are definitely not a capitalist society. We were f- far from a capitalist society. We have tremendous amount of taxation and regulations. Uh, you know, there's a federal reserve system that can create fiat money. Um, there's all kinds of things that the government does that it would not be doing in a capitalist society. All these, uh, you know, retirement programs, social security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, public education, public roads, uh, public mail carrying, postal service, all these things funded by coercive taxation. None of this would exist in, Sorry, in uh, a capitalist society. Let me just stop you right there. Did did uh, okay. have you? Was it you who talked to um, uh, Sam Cedar about taxation and whether taxes are theft or not, or was that someone else? I did talk to Sam Cedar about whether, uh, well, about the meaning of coercion, and I think it also maybe first came up in regard to taxation. I was saying in my one of my calls to Sam Cedar, these are linked on my my YouTube channel, by the way. Um, I said taxes are coercive and, uh, I think his co-host Emma was saying, well, you know, there's no way to avoid co- coercion. Um, uh, you're coerced to work a job. She said that. And I said, no, it's voluntary. So we had disagreements about what is and isn't coercive over the course of actually a couple calls to Sam Cedar about that. And I think that's another term, just like capitalism, which I think there's going to be disagreements between people who are socialists, people who are capitalists. They're not going to agree on what is and isn't coercion. So I think it's it's um, very important to get clear on what all these terms mean. And if we're not using them in the same sense, then we're just talking past each other. And, um, you know, that's not going to make for a very productive discussion. So we could talk about some of these these concepts and... Um, you know, if you have a different view of what capitalism is or what coercion is, then, uh, you know, that's something I'd be game to talk about. Um, yeah, I mean, because the, the meat of what I wanted to talk about was was capitalism. And in general, I mean, capitalism for you is a vehicle to reach ultimate human freedom, like for the individual. Right. So that's why you you, you prefer capitalism. So um, but so we'll talk about capitalism in a second. But what I wanted to bring up was. Uh oh! Did I just forget what I wanted to bring up? Um, what are you saying right before that? Uh I was well. I, I had gone through the meaning of selfishness as Rand understands it, and said how that's uh, uh, it could be selfish in her sense to share the berries, and then I said capitalism is another term. That she has, um, or the way she understands it, it's definitely not the system we have today. We don't have anything close to a capitalist system. It, she would call it a mixed economy. What we have today, there's where there's a mixture of freedom and controls. Um, there's much the government does in terms of taxes and regulations, which it would not be doing in a capitalist 
society as she understands it. So in her view, the only thing the government would be doing in a capitalist society is protecting individual rights, which for her means protecting people from physical force or coercion, to use that term. So there's only basically three functions of a, of a proper government, police, military, and courts. So the police that protects you from domestic criminals who would use force against you. And the military protects you from foreign invaders who would use force against you. And then the courts settles disputes peacefully between people so that, you know, they don't have to resort to physical force to settle their dispute. They can settle it in a, in a peaceful way. See, so I, those, those are the only things that the government should be doing in a capitalist see, society. That, that, that always seemed a bit uh, hypocritical uh, or maybe contradictory to me from, from a libertarian perspective because like the military and the police are the most coercive elements of the state. They're the most coercive, ele- uh, coercive things you can have. And in fact, in practice, all through history, what happens with, with militaries, especially from large empires like the United States? Well, they, they invade, they overthrow, they coup um, governments that don't uh, toe the line that they want them to, that don't play along, that don't help American capitalism. Uh, and what do the police do? Well, we, had, we all got to see, thanks to cell phones, um, what happens to uh, when people protest in, with the George Floyd protest two summers ago. Um, Police were beating the crap out of elderly men, out of people doing nothing at all, um, and uh, you know we got we got to see a taste of what why they exist um, and what they're for. Um, so I mean, again, uh, it seems pretty clear. Like how how do you how would you how do you explain that what militaries have been shown to do and what they're for and and same with police. And how do you see that? How can you square that with like this idea that they they're there to protect, you know, liberty? <laughs> well, I think that's their proper function, which is not to say they can't. That's not be what, abused. I mean, do you know the history of police? Do you know why they exist? That's def- that was never their proper function. I, I'm well, I'm saying that's that's what this is what they should do. They shouldn't use force <laughs> in initiation. They should only use force in retaliation. If they don't do that, then now they okay, they become the they become you, the criminals that they're supposed to uh, protect us from. So how do you create a society? Uh, like, do you just change people's minds, the ideas in their head, and say, well, you know, tell police, you know, it's better if you just aren't uh, brutalizing the poor or and minorities, and you're you're you you like, do you think that's going to be persuasive? Well, I I think you're first of all. I mean, we we might have different evaluations of to what extent right now the police are initiating force as opposed to people in the eye for protesting as opposed to um, retaliating in force. Like, I mean, just take the American police in general. I'm no expert on this, but in general, I think they do use force and retaliation. They don't, they're, they're catching crooks, they're stopping criminals. Uh, now, there are some crimes, like drug crimes, I, I don't think they should be going after. I think that's this is one of the problems, that we've made some things, some activities criminal, which shouldn't be criminal, namely using drugs, uh, 
I think drugs should be legalized. Why, Prostitution, why I think, should be legalized. Why do you think the state did that? Um, but I, I think, just to finish the thought here, um, I think in general, the, the at least in, in the United States, we don't have like a Gestapo, right? A secret police which is going around arresting people without any um, warrants in the middle of the night, hauling them off to jail without a trial. We have a legal system here, and um, we sort of do not perfect, but I think in general our, our police do use force in retaliation. They might screw up sometimes, but I think in general they they are doing that. You don't think there's a history so that's what of, I would say. You don't think that there's a history of you know people can inconvenient to the state getting getting off before their trials, or you know, uh, or before. Or, or, or before uh, releasing some piece of journal- journalism or before speaking out. I'm thinking uh, several people around 9-11, several people around the JFK assassination, several people around the 2000 election. Um, you, you don't think this, this is the type of thing that happens at all? I mean, I, there's, there's examples. Well, I'm not that. saying it doesn't happen at all. I'm just saying I don't think that's the dominant trend. I think it's it's probably – I mean, I haven't looked into it much, but I would guess – that it's a quite small percentage of you consider all the police interactions, the millions, I don't know how many there are per year. I would suspect the vast majority of them uh, are going pretty much as they should. And, you know, you hear about the ones that don't go as they should precisely because uh, I would think because they are exceptions. Uh, I mean, if they, if that were the rule, then, you know, it wouldn't make the news. It wouldn't be um, any big deal. It would just be the norm, but, um, I think the norm is pretty good. Okay. Well, uh, but I mean, I think there there is uh, certain laws are are bad and have been around for a long time. Like these drug laws, I think they're very bad. I think that's actually making things worse. It's harder for the police to catch the actual criminals when they spend so much time and resources going after these people who are not committing any crime that's hurting anybody, except maybe themselves. I mean, I don't think it's it's good to be addicted to drugs. Um, but, you know, I think someone should have the freedom to to, to use drugs and uh, it's it's not right for the police to uh, prosecute them. It's a victim, victimless crime, so it shouldn't be a crime. It should only be a crime, I think, if you're initiating force against somebody else. Um, okay, but, I mean, if you... If you, I mean, if you hold up capitalism as the system that's going to going to bring the most freedom... It is under capitalism and because of capitalism that um, states do things like criminalize drugs because that helps to keep a certain population um, as the underclass. And, what, and that allows you to have a reserve army of labor for, uh, to keep wages low um, because when you have a working class um, that's let's – say, let's say their wages are getting too high for um, – you know, for for the average capitalist. Well, if you have a large unemployed and uh, you know lumpenized uh, amount of, let's say, uh, black people or whoever or or poor whites, um, that is a threat to the people who are working class, and so their their wages can be crushed down because if you fire those people, then there's there's you have a you have a re- reserve army of labor uh, to take the place of those people um, and to take those jobs. And so, keeping that, um, 
keeping a, uh, a boot on the neck of a certain percentage of the population is always going to be helpful for a capitalist system. Okay. So here again, we come to the issue of the meaning of terms. So the way you're using capitalism is not the way I would use it because these things you're describing are not capitalist activities. So there are no laws under capitalism that criminalize drugs. So the only laws there are are laws that bar the initiation of force, and that includes fraud. You know, that's also outlawed. Um, that's a form of force, I think. But you're not initiating force against anybody when you use drugs. You might be hurting yourself, but you're not using force against anybody else. So that will not be criminalized under the, a capitalist system, as I'm using the term capitalism. But we're in capitalism um, now. No. It is <laughs> so here again, we disagree. So th this is why I think it's really important to get clear on the terms, because, you know, if you call today's system capitalism, then, yes. you know, yes. we're, we're using the word in totally different senses because mm -hmm. it has no relation to the way I'm using it. Okay. So, you know, it's just, we're just talking past each other at that point. Okay. Well, then let's let's take let, let's is kind of what I wanted to get into. Let's take um, the, the libertarian kind of ideal fantasy version of capitalism. Right. So. It's a little hard to do because you kind of have to root it in history. Where did capitalism come from? Well, capitalism is, uh, you know, we all through history we we have there has been commodity production. That's all. It's always existed. People have people have grown or made things for the purpose of sale. That's that's what a commodity is for the. So instead of for the pur uh, you make things for the purpose of use for yourself or or for others. You make it for the purpose of sale. That's what a commodity. So capitalism is the. Uh, generalize the generalization of the of commodity production um as the mode of production so uh, uh, of how things get produced and how things uh get consumed so that happens because private uh, what was formerly common commonly owned land um the commons um gets privatized gets enclosed um in you know in england in france in in, in all of Europe, basically. Um, and so the enclosure movement uh, starts uh, starts a process of um, big landholders taking over and kicking peasants off the land. Peasants have to go now. They have, they have no way of, of uh, sustaining themselves, and they have to go to the cities where factories now exist. And uh, so capitalist production is when you... Um, you own you own the means of production. You let's say privately owned. You own a, a factory or something, and you're making uh, widgets. And you need people to work for you. But in a in a society where where previously everyone was self sustaining or in in communities and uh, made their own food, which for almost you know ninety nine point nine percent of human history that's how the world worked. Um, most people li live that way. Uh, you 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 couldn't really get capitalism off the ground because you had no one to, to why would anybody work for you in a 12 hours a day in a factory? Well, once you kick them off the land and close, uh, and close uh, the, the commons, then you're able to do that um, because people have nowhere else to go. So, to, so capitalism itself is the theft of the commons to start with, right? And then that, that enables uh, capital to start, oh, and colonialism, obviously. So, right, so the 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 by force um you know raping and pillaging of and bringing back of wealth from from the new world to 
to the old world brings the uh, you know the extra wealth needed to actually get industry going, um, and so 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 you end up so so early on in you know the eighteen hundreds eighteen forties maybe before that, then you 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 have a system that is what you might call pure capitalism, uh, where where uh, there's not much government real uh, regulation of anything going on. Um, in fact, modern states for the most part don't really exist. Um, and you have businesses that are highly competitive with each other. Uh, but soon that, as Marx explained, <laughs> that gives way to monopoly capitalism, right? Because once ca one capitalist is more successful than another or has some advantage for whatever reason, he's going to uh, grow bigger and buy out the other guy. Um, and uh, because capitalism is so productive, this happens faster and faster. So you end up with monopolies, then cartels, and then finally, uh, you end up with imperialism because it's it starts being more profitable to export your uh, your production elsewhere, um, and so the whole thing is predicated on theft and violence. Now, not now I'm not saying that's bad. It's actually a very progressive thing in, in the course of human history. Capitalism uh, unleashed uh, an insane amount of productivity. So that's that's a very good thing. However, to do that, it, it was a very you know, bloody and brutal, brutal process. Um, now, the state comes into play as, as capitalism, as the as states start to realize um, they need to kind of um, manage and help capitalism grow, they, they grow alongside capitalism. So you could, the, the modern state exists because of capital, the commodity production and state itself. So you can't separate the two. They, they're they're in, inextricably intertwined because without without a state you don't have um, you know you used to have like tariffs and stuff and different you know you do different coins and different provinces and stuff you need to um, you need to make trade easy you need to facilitate it um, in a way that you can't do without without a state and in the standardization of rules and laws um, that make you know and, and enforce property rights um, and so the size, the size of the state directly correlates to the size of the market. Ministries and departments merge to facilitate, facilitate capitalist growth, not to stop it. Uh, without the state, there is no capitalism. The reason Das Kapital by Marx is, uh, is so important is that Marx takes libertarians at their word. He lays out the capitalist mode of production under the perfect competitive conditions that they kind of, that you guys outline or, or, or at least assume. And then shows concretely how its inherently its inherent contradictions not only lead to its own abolition, um, but to socialism. And yeah, the one of the the point I wanted to make earlier is that you, you know, you you say that um, if sharing is in your own interest, because we talked about you know uh, primitive uh, primitive uh, societies, if sharing is in your own interest, sometimes, then. Um, then the why I'm not sure why her conclusion isn't that the, the you must you have to go to socialism because to in in order to actually maximize the efficiency and and wealth of society uh, and get rid of all the waste and make as much people um, as you know as uh, live in the most high standard society as possible you'd want to um, share these these things communally. And uh, and raise everybody's level instead of and, and, and you know, there's no force necessary there because it's democratically controlled.
by the workers who were brought together by that system, by the system, right? Like I said, from the from the, the reason you couldn't have socialism hundreds of years ago is because everyone lived out on uh, in the in the countryside. When capitalism brings everyone together into the cities, takes kicks them off the land, brings them together. Suddenly, the, these workers can realize they have the, they share the same interest. And there's only one boss, and um, you know they they actually have the power in the situation, and they can just take over the factories that the boss owns and run society themselves. Sorry, that was a okay. lot there. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot. So you're, we're still not using the term in the same sense because when you talk about theft, you know, kicking people off the lands. Yeah, that's a prerequisite for capitalist society. No, I, I, don't, I don't think it is. I think so what I endorse and what I understand capitalism to be is <clears throat> a system in which you respect individual rights. And what that means is that you don't initiate force. You don't kick people off their land. You don't engage in thievery. So if that is involved, that is not capitalism, or at least that's not what I endorse, and it's not what Ayn Rand endorses. It's something then, else. Then how did capitalism evolve out of feudal societies, previous societies? How did, we, how did, how did it happen that all of a sudden there was privately owned means of production and uh, wage labor, right, and surplus, surplus value? How did that happen? Just because everyone agreed, just thought about it and had a debate? And well, there was, I mean, the, a, a lot of the key knowledge, I think, was <clears throat> discovered by John Locke and following on his discovery of rights, which I don't think he had a perfect grasp of, but I think it was a huge leap forward. Um, the The founding fathers implemented his idea of rights in a political system and their ideas are expressed in the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. Not perfectly, but it was a huge leap forward from what existed prior to that. So I think the um, Locke's and the Founding Fathers' idea of rights is, I think, essentially this idea of uh, not initiating force. They didn't say that explicitly, I don't believe, but I think that's the implied idea of um, like the light, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, I think maybe in some other documents or drafts of those documents, they refer to the right to property. Uh, so, as to how this came about historically, I think in the Enlightenments and in the Age of Reason, figures like Locke and the Founding Fathers came up with this idea that this, the role of the state, it, it shouldn't be the role of the state to uh, dictate to people how they live their lives. The state should be the servant of people, not the master of the people. So there was no king in America. You know, that was... Uh, a new kind of idea. It's not. It's no longer your, your idea to live for the glory of some monarch. Rather, the individual's life is paramount. That's what really matters. And the the role of the state and the government is to help the individual live a good life. And they tried to create a new kind of political system with the individual in mind, not with you know some absolute monarch. 
and you know who's just got surf serving him that's not the right role of the individual the ind- individual is an end in himself he's not just sacrificial fodder for some tribe or some king um he has the right to his own life liberty and pursuit of happiness and uh that's so once these ideas were discovered then they created a constitution to try to implement that and uh there were contradictions from the start, you know, they still had slavery, which was a violation of rights. And then they fought a civil war to end that, to more consistently um, carry out the principle that was implicit in the founding documents. Um, they granted everyone the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think in the late 19th century may have been the time when it was closest to what I'm talking about or what Rand had envisioned for an ideal society. Um, where no one is initiating force against anyone else. And the state's role is just to uh, protect individual rights. And then I think that's been eroded in the 20th century with the rise of the welfare states and all these government programs, Social Security, Medicare. Um, I think we've, we've lost the vision of the founders and are moving away from that back in a more statist kind of direction. Okay, so um, initiating force, um, you, you, you say that that was part of the, the goals of the, the founding fathers. Now, well, that's okay. what they tried to oppose. That's, yeah, right. So, but from day one um, in the United States, they, you know, they landed there and started, started uh, you know, implementing the private property system of, from the uh, from the U the UK from, from Britain. And that meant necessarily taking, you know, fencing off, putting lines around some land. And who, who were they taking that away from that, that, that didn't come from, you know, that just wasn't theirs. Um, just because they were, they happened to, to be there that it was used by, um, you know, uh, Indians is what they called them at the time. And, you know, through the century, they started just pushing more and more westward, kicking Native Americans off the land uh, in order to facilitate this private property. So I would say that's force. Um, I would say any time anytime you take what was once public land and saying, this is mine now, that is absolutely force and coercion. And saying, you can't come in here, this is mine. So the Indians is... Yeah, that's often brought up. Um, didn't we steal land from the Indians? In, in uh, some cases, we might have, but... Definitely did. Uh, in, in some cases, we might not have. So I don't think that um, if, if you're a... Uh, I mean, there's a question of what gives you the right to land. I mean, if you, if you land on a continent and there's, you know, Jamestown... And, um, you know, you find a little island and there's no one there, at least not, not in the day you landed, let's say. I mean, do you, do you have a right to take that land over? What if, you know, some Indian comes by once every 300 years to shoot a buffalo with a bow and arrow? Does he have now a right to that entire island? Because, you know, maybe once every 300 years he's going to come by and shoot an animal. Um, I don't think it's obvious that he does. So I think 
we need to come up with a system of property rights and try to figure out, well, you know, what is it that entitles you to some land? Uh, did the Indians have a right to the entire continent? And so that, does that mean that, you know, no one could have ever come here? Did the Indians themselves even have a concept of rights? Did the Indians engage in millennia of tribal warfare where they slaughtered each other? Um, if so, then, you know, Europeans did that too. Did, did they, did, did they really have any greater claim than anybody else well, to the lands? Or should we be, you know, attacking the Indians for being savages given the way they treated each other? Um, I think these are relevant questions. So I don't, I don't think it's obvious that, um, you know, we can just take for granted that what the Europeans did was entirely wrong and was stealing land. Maybe in some cases it was. Now, I think if if Indians were being peaceful, if they weren't engaging in massacres <laughs> unprovoked, um, then I don't think uh, it's right to attack the Indians. I, I think if you know if they're just um, engaging in agriculture on some set of land, I don't think anyone has. I don't think any Europeans have a right to kick them off that land or to steal what they've taken. I think they can trade. They can at least offer to engage in trade with those Indians. Um, but I don't think they have a right to kick them off that land. If they did kick them off that land, then I think that's that's a violation of their rights, and that shouldn't have been done. Okay. Um, so, I mean, you you acknowledge that, that uh, you know, perhaps some of, some of the, at least some of the, uh, the land uh, seizures may, may not have been... Um, uh, done without coercion now i mean i'm sure you've seen a map before of native american reservations in in the united states now and what that looks like um i'm, I'm sure you can i'm sure you can imagine if you if you just look at a map it's about what 99 percent um owned by the colonists currently now and uh, the native americans are, are left with tiny little par parcels scattered around the mid and western united states in fact the the east is almost entirely they've wiped out they got pushed out now from what you were describing most of most of the most of what was done was justified um for some reason um or maybe through deals or whatever uh, i don't i can't imagine 20 million um Native Americans agreeing without coercion to how this map looks now, right? If they, if if you, you think you know back in 1776 or no, sorry, not 1776 in the 1600s or whatever, when when they first encountered the Jamestowners, um, they said, okay, here's the deal we're going to give you: we're going to take 99% uh, of your land, and uh, you can have these little patches in the west, and you have to move. By the way, you can't live here anymore. Uh, you you think that is that is that a, a is that something they would have agreed to without force? I don't think so. Well, they, I mean, they, there's a lot of Indian groups. I mean, they're, they're not a monolithic um, tribe, and as I, I mean, they fought amongst themselves. So um, they they're saying they wipe themselves out all of a sudden in a hundred years. I mean, I think I think some of them did try to exterminate other tribes, actually. Um, so that explains the, why they don't have any land anymore. No, I'm just saying that, um, 
they're not a monolithic group. It's not like there was one, one nice group of Indians who were totally peaceful and we just kicked them all to some, some, you know, tiny, tiny remote place in the West. There are lots of different tribes and they fought amongst themselves. And I mean, they would ally, you know, some would ally with the French, some would ally with the British and they would kill each other in the wars that European countries were fighting in the French and Indian wars. And, you know, there are all these treaties were made, um, many different treaties with many different groups. How many of those treaties um, were respected by the French and the British? I don't know. I don't know, like, all the history of this. But I'm just saying there's, there's – no, I don't think there's one simple answer that says, you know, you know we, just, we just kicked the Indians off their lands – into this one tiny place and it was unjustified. I think it's, it's more complicated than that, which is not to say there weren't unjust things done. Um, but I think if there, you know, insofar as there were unjust things done insofar as there were initiations of force, I oppose that. I don't think it should have been done. Okay. But the, you could have asked them, you know, to assimilate or, you know, if they don't want to assimilate, they can be on their, some plot of lands and uh, maybe trade if they want, but I don't think she should be kicked off it if they're being peaceful. If they're being pe- so okay, so um, yeah, if they're if they're being peaceful, um, shoot, I had something to say. Um, I, okay, so I think that I think the difference here is you see you see capitalism as an ethical system from the outset, like in, inherently ethical, um, that it helps promote freedom. What I'm trying to explain to you is that capitalism emerges materially out of history, and it emerges a certain way. You can't do it without without blood and theft and without expropriation um there's there's no there's no version of of capitalism that can can come about any other way if you have societies as they all were with 90 percent of the population living uh, off the land um and you need to get industry going and you need to the you're trying to get the private property system going um at some point you have to make a change materially and that's going to be to kick people off the land um, and that's going to be also to go to the to the new world and get uh, extract resources and send them back. Um, now, so like you know, there there is no there is no uh, modern United States or Britain without the colonies um, because that's where the wealth the all that extra wealth came from uh, in order to get industry going, to get you know the factories off the ground and the the railroads and the steam and um, in the mills, um, it it doesn't it can't really happen otherwise. You can't raise enough capital or generate enough wealth without having done that um, col- colonization and, uh, and invasions and, and violence to begin with. Um, and and capitalism, like you seem to, 
I think, yeah, you you have kind of a divorced from the material world idea of what, like capitalism is an idea. It's a mode of production. It's a, it's a way people organize society. Oh, shoot. I'll fix that. Um, here, I'll let you respond. Oh, okay. Well, I, I don't accept that uh, capitalism has as part of it that you have to invade uh, other people's lands and engage in thefts. I, I think that's, uh, I don't see any reason time. for that. It happened at, like at every, everywhere capitalism emerged early. That's what happened. The, uh, I mean, there's the, the fact that there was some instances of theft, um, which all grants doesn't mean that it had to happen or that wouldn't have been better. I think it would have been better if there weren't. It could have had even a, a stronger system um, if they had respected rights all, all along. Um, I think you know you get more value that way, more trading partners. If you're not conquering people, instead you're you're um, treating them as respected equals, and you can trade with them. They'll be much better disposed towards you. It's in your interest to to respect people's rights. Okay, so why is socialism not in? Uh, so capitalism. By definition, creates classes, right? You have owners of capital, uh, but privately hold means of production. Then you have workers for them, so you automatically get a class differentiation. There's people in the middle. There's petty bourgeoisie. There's 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 middle class people. There's uh, lumpen. Um, how does capitalism for you um, generate freedom? Well. It... <sighs> It doesn't generate freedom. It is freedom, but like by definition, if as I understand on, if, it. If you're somebody, if you're born property property less, and you you can't eat or have shelter without selling your labor power to someone else who has basically control over your life, then how is that not freedom? How is that freedom? You don't have the freedom to okay. not do that. You have you have to sell yourself to some capitalist in that situation. So I think now we might be getting to a more fundamental concept than capitalism, namely freedom. So what does freedom mean? Uh, and the way I understand freedom in this context, in a political context, is the absence of force or coercion. So I think that's even a more fundamental concept. So we're defining or I'm defining freedom in terms of force. It's the absence of force. That's what freedom is. Okay. And then there, that raises a question of what is force uh, or what is coercion? And we could talk about that. And I, you know, I have some videos about that. That was one of the main topics of my calls to Sam Cedar. Um, so I think often th that's where the disagreement is between so socialists and capitalists is what is actually coercion or what is force but don't you think that's kind of a narrow like stunted view for view of freedom like that, that by your definition someone living on the streets as a homeless person is is free right they're, they're the most free because no one's telling them what to do like but and yet their options 
their their what's on the horizon for their possibilities is the lowest um, out of anyone in modern society. So I mean, how, that's not a very that doesn't seem to me like a very good notion of freedom, very useful one. Because why don't we just all be homeless then? So we're all free <clears throat> and not have jobs. Well, I wouldn't say that a homeless person is most free. I don't. I don't they, think freedom is. They're, they're not, they don't have coercion. No one's coercing them. I, they might be free, but I wouldn't say they're the most free. So if they're not subject to coercion, then I would say they are free. But you know, many other people are also not subject to coercion who are not living on the streets. I don't think you you're any like have a special amount of freedom just because you're on the streets. I think what what matters is. Are you being subject to force by somebody else? If you're not, you're free. Doesn't mean you're you're doing great, but uh, it does mean you're free. So I think freedom is a is a necessary condition of having a good life, but it's not a sufficient condition. I think to have a good life, you need to use your freedom wisely. You have to not be a lazy bum. You should uh, try to find some productive work to support yourself and if you if you choose not to do that if you choose to be a bum on the streets and just panhandle for money i don't think that's gonna be conducive to a happy life so i think that would be a a a bad use of freedom but i think some people might choose that so you think you think uh homeless people choose choose to be homeless people i i think uh have you met homeless people some uh I, I think some probably do. I mean, I haven't talked to a lot of them. Um, uh, not, I don't know if I've talked to any of them, but um, I, I, I think people don't. Pe- people are responsible for themselves, and I think it's very hard to just end up on the streets without a lot and you know, thousands of choices across the course of many years of your life, which puts you there. Um, now, so, wait, okay. So, so Marx is like talking about material conditions. So if you, let's say you're, you, uh, you are born with, you could be born, maybe what you have some, uh, some mental, no, you're not born with the disease. You, you're born to a, uh, a poor and a, uh, violent family, abusive family. They're abu- they abuse each other. They abuse you. Uh, you end up developing psychosis, maybe borderline personality disorder, maybe several other things. Uh, you can't cope in the world. You you start hearing voices. You can't hold a job. And uh, you end up on the streets. Or or you, because, because of these, the way your brain has, has learned to cope with the trauma it's faced, it becomes uh, uh, addiction-seeking. Addiction maybe you, uh, you get into crack cocaine or heroin or something uh, because your brain is wired for you to has been wired for you to uh, to seek this out more than somebody who didn't go through that trauma at uh, at a kid at at a, at a young age. So, are, are we to blame these people for bad choices, or you know, because the most of the homeless population, you, may, you I don't know, I don't know if you're going to grant me this, are people who have deeply they come from deeply troubled families to start with. Oh Jesus Christ, and um, and usually have very significant mental health issues so are we are we just supposed to assume everybody is a perfectly rational actor and has the capability to go uh 
be a physicist and just uh, just just out of out of decision making, or and uh, you know make think uh, proper decisions that will that will make them excel under capitalist society. I'm not so sure. Well, they might not be able to be a physicist, but I think they can at least rake leaves. I mean, I don't think it's I think it's uh, extremely easy to support yourself there. I think maybe there are time. I think there's probably a tiny fringe of people like well under one percent who can't do anything at all to support themselves. I think it's extremely easy uh, to support yourself, especially in today's society. Um, you know, if you just uh, I sometimes give the example of data entry, like the, you just have a computer and someone could hire you to do data entry. Um, so even if you can't, you're disabled, you're immobile, you don't have any legs even, you can still sit at home and uh, enter data in a computer and get paid to do that. I had a data, um, data entry job and it required uh, a bachelor's degree. Well, it doesn't which, need which, to. Which I mean, cost me, what, $50,000? You don't need a bachelor's degree to do data entry. It's a pretty according mindless this, kind of. Uh, according to this corporation, I did. According work. to the market, the free market decided I needed a bachelor's degree. Well, and everybody there's, else there's, there had one. Um, there, there's no, there's no uh, government law saying you have to have a bachelor's degree to but do data entry. This. The market decided this. No, there's. I could hire somebody to do data entry if I wanted. You know, that's uh, what do you mean? The market decides. Well, I mean, it, market. It, it, there's many players in the market. Maybe some some people want a bachelor's degree in order to hire someone to do data entry, but it's certainly not all. Uh, right, but you also want if you're hiring a worker, you have a business, you want someone who's going to show up every day, be stable, be of sound mind, and not be unreliable. And if someone if if uh, if someone has a crack addiction because of the trauma they experienced in their their youth or uh or they have they just have some some you know schizophrenia or whatever they're not you're you're not going to be able to ha get them to show up so you're probably not going to bother hiring that person you're going to find someone who you know uh doesn't have many issues and because they were able to get a, a bachelor's degree or they were able to graduate high school um so you can trust that they'll be reliable workers yeah, sure. You should hire reliable workers for sure. Right. So those people though, that I was just saying are, that living on the streets aren't uh, they, they 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 have no ability to do that. There might be a tiny number of people who can't do anything at all and no one's going to hire them. So what are we um, <laughs> I don't I don't think you uh I mean those people can um I mean they're on the they're at the mercy of charity. Uh, and that's charity. uh yeah, I mean, I think it's um, a pretty trivial issue because it, I, I don't, I don't think the, the way now. to to um, we have charities now and we have plenty is, of homeless people. We have people without that are unhoused. We have plenty of elderly people that don't get enough care. Well, we, we also have don't charities. have anything close to capitalism. Uh, how so? In my view, but of course that you know that that's the whole. Uh, I, I've talked about how all the okay, taxes so, so and regulations. Let, let, how about you tell me, um, explain what a pure capitalist, a, a pure form of capitalism looks like? It would be a system in which the only roles of the governments are police, 
courts and military, basically. Okay, and then um, so what happens? Uh, so courts, courts are going to enforce um, contracts uh, between people. I'm assuming. Or I mean, they help settle disputes in a peaceful way. Instead of okay. people fighting things out, if they have a disagreement, they can sue. You know, you can take somebody to court, and then you have objective rules, procedures that you follow, presentations of evidence, counter evidence, cross examination, all that kind of stuff, to try to get a fair verdict. Okay. Um, who who um, ensures that the courts and the police and the military? Uh, who ensures that they don't become corrupted by? Uh, very successful capitalists who start becoming uh, monopolies and, and uh, Jesus. sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Who ensures they don't be corrupted? Yeah. How, how I do mean, you, you, how do you prevent those, 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 those uh, institutions from not from, you know, because if, if you accept that, you know, capitalism is free as, uh, as free as can be, you let them do their thing. Well, then you're going to end up with you know more successful capitalists than others who who swallow others up and become monopolies. So and they're going to have the 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 money to try to influence these uh, institutions uh, of the state, the small ones that exist. So how do you prevent that? Well, bribery basically. So um, how do you prevent like rich people from bribing courts yeah, sure. or legislators wow. to? to um, Well, I think the um, they have to um, their reputation is on the line. That's one thing. So they have to uh, do this covertly. They they have to do this covertly because it's illegal in a capitalist system. But they do, they uh, do so, it covertly now. Well, it still happens. I've already said we don't. Are we? Um, I mean, there's always someone who might try. Like, no matter what system uh, you have, people might try to bribe. Uh, so, uh, what's what's the best way to minimize that? And I think if you have it as the official law that you can't do such things, which you would have that in a capitalist system, then that means those people have to do it covertly. They have to be secretive. They have to be dishonest about that. They have to do it in the shadows. Um, so they're constantly under threat of getting exposed and blackmail. Um, and, you know, they, I think they might be able to get away with something for a while, but eventually I think, um, uh, reality is not on their side, and the scandal will come out to light at some points. Uh, but I don't, I don't know that there's, I mean, what would that there's a better way to deal with it? I mean, what is the solution? Let people force each other? Um, no, is I mean, it should that be the law? Is that going to encourage better behavior? Well, actually, I, I don't I, think I, so. I would say the solution is is democratic workers' control of, of mob rule. Uh, no, not the, not, not mob rule. Um, uh, organized control democratically uh, of the workers for the workers. Um, but but in your system, um, you know, okay. So so if a, let's say a, let's say a capitalist was you know giving bribes to uh, the courts and the and the police, 
um, for whatever reason. Um, well, he wouldn't really be a capitalist then. He'd be more of a statist. Well, using the power of the state as opposed to the power of the, you know, power okay. of persuasion. This is this is a good point. This is a good point. Now, sure, he maybe by by your definition he might not, but uh, he might not. But what I'm saying is under capitalism, your capitalism, all the incentives are there. Like every capitalist who's successful has is incentivized to uh, pay off the elements of the state that it can in order to get to gain an advantage somehow in the market to increase I mean because the whole goal of a capitalist is to increase profit increase market share and to crush their competition so if they can do that by not by using the state though <laughs> no, no, yeah, but but the incentives there so like why why wouldn't a capitalist do that if they had the ability if they had if it was they saw a window open then and they say you know these these cops and these courts they're not making you know they don't have they don't have a uh, they can't afford a, a trip to Aruba. They can't afford, uh, you know, a cottage in the Hamptons. Uh, what if I, you know, what if we invite them out there? What if we give them something? Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, they're 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 able to uh, to do these things that they couldn't before and live the rich life um, by you know by taking uh, some some bribes from me. I think that's it's it's not in their interest to violate other people's rights. I think that's basically what you're saying. Like that it would be, or that there's this incentive to violate other people's rights. Yeah. I don't. I don't think there is. Uh, if you're thinking long range about what's most conducive to your own well-being, including your own psychological well-being, if you treat other people uh, badly, if you, then I don't think you can by you know by violating their rights by living as a parasite on them. Um, I don't think you can fully respect yourself. If, that's, if that's that, your... in er, in, under early capitalism, under free market conditions, before there was monopolies, that's what they were doing. They were treating their their workers like they were working them fourteen hours a, a, a week. Uh, they were, they had they were hiring children because they could because there were the laws. Um, they, you know, uh, workers were dying left and right in the foundries, um, getting crushed by machinery because they could because they were incentivized to do so because profit is their main incentive. <laughs> And if you want freedom, it just doesn't make any sense to me why, why you know this would be the, the ideal system for you. Hiring workers to work long hours and hiring children is not, per se, a violation of freedom. It's, it's sure. uh, I but mean, if things things get better over time. So when you're in the early days of the industrial revolution it's that you can't fault some you know these people for being in worse conditions i mean you're growing they were that we could eventually have a standard of living it wasn't necessary for parents to send their children to to work they could afford to just send them to school and get an education but there was a stage people didn't have wealth they did the best they could at the time um and that that could mean sending the kid to work for some amount of time. But I mean, that's, I don't think that's being cruel. That was just the reality of the time. You have to start from a, a more poor condition. And then over decades, over generations, you work your way to a time where, you know, now we have an eight hour workday, maybe in a hundred, 200 years, we'll have a four hour workday. Okay. But why? Um, that doesn't why? mean we're being cruel right now, but making people work eight hours a day. It's just, that's where we happen to be right now. But why, why do we have, 
an eight-hour workday? Why do we have a weekend? Why do we have uh, vacation pay and benefits? Well, we're less now. But what, let's say, why did, we, why did we have those things in the 50s and 60s and, and 40s? Where did they come from? Where did uh, I think the better conditions come from leaving people free. And that's capitalism. So I think the progress... Is that what happened? That's, yeah, pr- through... Um, so capitalists just productive, out, of, out of the kindness of their hearts just decided to, to pay them. No, out of greater productivity. You know, in inventions, you know, over time, you get the... Um, you got the steam engine, you got the, uh, the cotton gin, you got the invention of electricity, the light bulb, the whole uh, energy industry, oil, trains, all these things uh, increase our standard of living. Now we've got smartphones, so life gets better and better. But for that to happen, I think you need to give people freedom, freedom, including freedom to innovate. If you... The mind is the source of wealth. That's a big difference between Marx's view and Rand's view. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have a materialistic view of the source of the wealth. She thinks the mind, the human mind, is the basic source of wealth. You know, we had muscle power for millennia going back to cave days, but it was in the wake of the scientific revolution when all this knowledge was discovered. That's um, that eventually made possible the industrial revolution and all the technology that enabled. So now we have uh, rocketed forward in the last few hundred years in our standard of living, thanks to the political and economic freedom uh, that's increased over that time. So if we want more progress, I think we need more freedom. Uh, but I, mean, I fully agree. <laughs> I fully agree. We need more freedom, but uh, which means absence of coercion, including coercion by the states. So um, I, I, I also agree. Actually, that means an absence of coercion. But if you, are, but of course, we don't agree on what coercion is. <laughs> so if you are, if you're a worker working, let's say we're back in the uh, the 1840s. If you're a worker working uh, a 14 hour day, and all your other workers are are uh, working 14 hour days. Well, then what you do in order to change that is say, well, the cap, you, you know that the boss needs you in order to make money. So make their profits. And you know that the boss is ex- exploiting your labor time and uh, trimming, uh, skimming off the top. Um, so what you do is you organize with your fellow workers and institute some coercion of your own on the boss and say, hey, you know what? We're not going to work for you. We're not going to do anything. You're, we're not going to help you make that profit um, unless you shorten our workday and give us better wages. And I mean, it sounds like you don't know much of the history of, you know, the, the, the labor history of the United States. But, um, you know, Marx isn't wrong when he says history is um, the history of class struggle. Uh, all of the things I mentioned before, vacation pay, weekends, like, these didn't exist until unions were formed and fought for them individually. Like you, you could look, you could look up how each of these things was won, and it would, you'll you'll find every single time it was because unions fought for it, and and how they do that through coercion, uh, by by you know fighting the boss, by putting pressure on them and saying, all right, you're you're going to lose market share, you're going to lose profitability because we're shutting down. Um, the factory for now, and you can't do anything about it until we agree to better conditions. Okay. So, that's, so I would say that's how freedom is won. So I think there are a number of myths about the history of capitalism, and I have a book 
by Ayn Rand, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, which has a chapter called Common Fallacies about Capitalism. And one of them is about uh, the role of labor unions. So I can read you. This is actually from a, a, another author contributing to her 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 book, uh, Nathaniel Brandon. So here's a paragraph that he wrote. He says, uh, it was the economic self-interest of employers that led them to raise wages and shorten working hours, not the pressure of labor unions. The eight-hour work, the eight-hour day was established in most American industries long before unions acquired any significant size or economic power. At a time when his competitors were paying their workers between two and three dollars a day, Henry Ford offered five dollars a day, thereby attracting the most efficient labor force in the country and thus raising his own production and profits. In the 1920s, when the labor movement in France and Germany was far more dominant than in the United States, the standard of living of the American worker was greatly superior. It was the consequence of economic freedom, unquote. So he's saying that it wasn't labor unions. It was the forces of capitalism that were making things better. But I know it's a common, uh, well, he would say myth that it was thanks to labor unions that things were getting better. Yes. There's all kinds of yes. things like, so, you know, I'm not an economic historian, but, you know, he, he's looked into this more than I have. He cites who, who people like Ludwig von Mises, uh, Austrian yeah, economist. Not- notoriously bad economist. Well, you're a socialist, right? So, of course, you're going to have that point of view, right? But, I mean, even, even in bourgeois <laughs> economics, like, none, none of them take von Mises seriously anymore. He's, he's, he's very. Uh, that's not my impression. I think there's a whole school of Austrian economists that, you know, hold him in very high regard. They hold Hayek in high regard. Um, and, you know, Hayek wasn't an idiot. Um, he had some things to say. Uh, he had some, you know, but he was, again, he was a neoclassical econo- economist. And von Mises was especially, like, if you play out his equations and the way he thinks about the world, none, none of it really applies pans out uh although this is kind of a, a different different conversation i don't want to get into uh, economics too much but um oh, what we were just saying about uh, okay. yeah so i mean this this guy talking about unions not 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 creating the eight hour work day i mean you can just read the wikipedia page for, for god's sakes um like the, it's not really a disputable fact um ayn rand may have been cherry picking and fishing for for uh, examples that maybe don't tell the whole story, but there's no why. Why are there no historians or economic historians that that agree with this 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 take? I mean, I, I don't think there's anybody that. I don't know that there are none. I I guarantee you there there are not. So I mean, if this this guy is just lying, then yes. Well, <laughs> I I'm going to need to uh, look into this myself before I, mean, I, I would, believe that just look just google like you know how the eight hour workday like I'm, I'm sure you can find lots of sources um i could probably send you some stuff too but um you know the weekend all these fights like uh the the right the right to strike was illegal in most places like and and i asked you about the police earlier now so you know some people argue that the police existed to uh they, they came out of uh slave uh to to, to manage you know uh 
to manage slaves uh, in the United States. Now, that's not quite true. Po the police, the police emerged out of the uh, out of the class struggle because unions were starting to get a little too powerful and a little too rowdy. And so, you know, there's a long history of police murdering and beating up workers. Um, and th this is what this was their main function for a long time up until up until about the post war period up until after World War Two, when you finally had this uh, United States in this very unique position where it was the only industrial nation that wasn't destroyed by the war and and uh, it had all its factories and, and, and capital going full steam ahead. And so it transitioned from a war economy, a very successful war economy to a uh, consumer economy very quickly and cr and created the world's first ever uh, middle class, uh, large middle class. And then and then, then ship that a lot of that wealth over to the other imperialist countries in, in the uh, in Japan and in Europe. But and, and that that was what was able to sustain this, you know, this uh, this leaps, this leap in, in standard of living. Um, but it was again, it was unions that were in, in agreement between unions and capital to to kind of you know uh, quiet the quiet the class struggle and get them to 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 come to to the bargaining table and say okay we'll give you a, a certain standard of life standard of living in order for you to you know stop pushing for you know transformation of society so one thing where that's not come up here is in connection with unions is the issue of force so i i think if if unions are not using force and if they're not taking advantage of the government they are, they using, are using force, force they are using force okay well that that's that's where i think the problem is so you don't think they don't have a right to the the uh they don't have a right to force a company to deal with them or to bargain with them i think that's wrong and no i don't think a capitalist is using force um, if that's what you were going to ask, yeah. Um, so we can we can talk more about that again. Like this comes down to the fundamental issue of what does force mean or what is coercion? And again, so I don't think I think it means the absence of. I think um, it's physical, basically unconsensual physical contact. I think that's a good at least starting definition of what force is. Now, if someone just offers you a job. They're not doing that. They're not. They're not making unconsensual physical contact with your person or property. So they're not engaged in force. What they're just that? making you an offer. It's an opportunity, which which you can accept or reject. They're not putting a gun to your head. So the threat of force is also force, and they're not they're not using force or the threat of force against you. So. so um, so the, re the reason the state is necessary and an integral part of capitalism is that the state is what recreates and produces the conditions for capitalism to succeed. It produces the conditions wherein workers and the unemployed are forced at threat of starvation to mm. work for a boss. <laughs> well, what about a... Not do that. <laughs> Why would you? Why would? Why would you? Why would you sell? You're not forced by the threat of starvation. You face that in nature when you're by yourself. Right. That's why humans are not by themselves. But, That's why humans are social beings. But are you? Are you forced animals. when you're by yourself on a desert island? Are you forced to what? 
are you forced at all? Uh, no, no, not on a desert island. Actually, okay. that's a great. That's a. I'm glad you brought up a desert island. I'm glad. You, have you have you heard? Uh, you know what I'm gonna. I'm about to ask. Are you going to do the coconut islands? Yes. What's your answer? What's your answer to the coconut? <laughs> I, I actually uh, tried to. Well, I mentioned that on my third call with Sam Cedar, and uh, I said it was vulgar, and uh, he didn't want to hear the vulgar version, and I didn't really want to say it. But um, uh, it, I mean, I could, if it's done in a indirect way, I don't mind saying it, like sure. perform sex, sexual favors. So for anyone listening who who uh, does hasn't heard of the coconut. Island example, which I guess Vosh is the one who originated it, or at least I'm made it sure famous. If, he, if, if it was him, but he made it famous, yeah. Yeah, so he says, uh, and you can just look this up online, but he says, like, if you're on an island, um, or a plane crashes into an island, and um, there are two survivors, you and one other person, and uh, you... you you both, uh, I guess, um, he wakes up before you do, and he gathers all the coconuts on the islands, and then uh, he stockpiles them, and uh, so then you property. wake up. These are my property. <laughs> yeah, he says it's his property, and then you wake up, and um, he says, well, I'll, I'll give you some of my coconuts if you perform this sexual favor on me. Is that a coercive or a voluntary interaction and i guess vosh and many of his uh viewpoints take that to be a coercive interaction <laughs> and i guess that's supposed to show that um you, you, don't you so? can coerce someone even if you're not uh engaging in uh unconsensual physical contact if you just wield this power if there's some kind of power imbalance then you're engaging in coercion. And I don't buy that. I don't think it is coercive to make this offer. What, cho- what choice does um, that person make? How is it not coercive? They, they don't have a choice to not do that because that coconuts are the only only source of food on the island. Um, I think it's uh, it's it's not coercion because the, the, the person who's collected the coconuts is not initiating force against him or his property okay so what if what if um the what if let's say the coconut collector the guy who woke up first is a sadomasochist or a masochist and um just really enjoys violence and he says i'll give you a coconut but if i get to uh cut your hand off one of your hands off mm-hmm now that person still needs the coconut to live. They need their hand less than they, than they need to be able to live on that island. There's let's say there's no, there's yeah there's nothing else available. Is that a coercive offer? I don't I don't think so. I think he's he's still making uh, an offer which the person can accept or reject. There's other options too. That, like the person that's... could just fight for the coconuts mm-hmm. and try to. Um, but that's coercive. Uh, uh, that's coercion. Y- y- it could be, yeah. But you I think this is a weird. Is, you said violence is coercion. Well, there. This is. This is. Uh, it's kind of an emergency situation. So I so think violence an emergency. Is okay. Violence is okay in an emergency. It can be, yeah, in an emergency situation. Ayn Rand has an article called "The Ethics of Emergencies," and she she says, you know, things are different in such situations because it's not normal life 
it's just you've got to um like if you're if you're starving and and uh the only way to keep yourself alive is to steal a loaf of bread she would say yeah go ahead do it steal the loaf of bread try to pay the pe- you should also try to make up for it later once you get stabilized and on your feet again um pay the person back but if it's an emergency situation of life or death then it's not the, the normal way of conducting yourself uh is not applicable but what i think many uh, socialists try to do is convert everything into an emergency situation in order to justify the use of force. But they're just, um, it, it's invalid to do that. They're, they're taking something out of context. Um, um, they're treating something as an emergency, which isn't really an emergency. You're not going to die if you work for minimum wage or seven bucks an hour. You're not, you're not going to be as rich as a lot of other people, but it's not an emergency situation, which justifies the use of force. Uh, I agree. It's it's not. I I don't. I don't really like the term emergency. I don't think socialists operate under under that assumption that the, this is an everything is an emergency and therefore we're going to do coercion and violence. I think what they what they operate under uh, is uh, let's take let's take Tsarist Russia or let's take uh, Bat- uh, Cuba under Batista. Uh, Batista was a client of the United States. I was basically he he had Cuba basically a um, playground for for rich American capitalists. Um, he was a very brutal dictator. The uh, Cuban people were very extremely poor, illiterate, um, had no there was no democracy there, um, and so it wasn't that you know we're we're gonna Castro didn't get together with uh, you know his revolutionary buddies and say this is an emergency. He said, well, actually, it's in all of our interest to overthrow these, these sons of bitches and make our, all of our lives better and, uh, and, and create. Actually, originally, he was looking for, uh, Castro was, was looking for a normal bourgeois democratic society. But the people pushed him and the United States pushed him to, uh, towards socialism. Um, so that's what ended up, ended up happening. And now you have, after the revolution, literacy, what happens? Literacy rates go way up. Uh, life expectancy, expectancy way up. Uh, extreme poverty eliminated completely. They all get health care. Um, there's a uh, because because he was following this the, kind of the, the Stalinist Marxist Leninist model. Uh, there's certainly uh, a large element of bureaucratization, um, you know, statism you would call it, and uh, you know, lack of uh, certain freedoms. But in uh, but there is not a single Cuban other than uh, the capitalists who fled. Who, by the way, were allowed to flee. To flee, there was very, very few people that were executed or anything at all, except for the the nastiest people in the Batista regime. Um, uh, for literally everybody on that island, their lives were better after the a socialist revolution than before. I don't know much about Cuba. Well, same, same uh, I, story I, for everywhere else, really. But I, I mean. If it was better than before, I don't know if it was, but even taking that for granted, um, it's. I, I, I think it would be much better if it were a system that uh, didn't coerce its own citizens, that left them free. I don't. I, I think. Uh, yeah, it would be much better off. Much more progress would occur. Um, 
fewer of them would be trying to escape. Aren't aren't some of them trying to escape to Florida and like risk their lives swimming through shark infested waters to get out of there? That's true. It's um, true. Some do. Um, but you know, you ever wonder why Vietnam and Cuba are kept as poor as they are? Like, what what is? It's because the United States is not willing to, you know, uh, to uh, let's uh, you know to see what's the better system. They so they impose embargoes. Not only do they impose embargoes on their closest trading partner, uh, Cuba, uh, other than Canada, but they they pressure other countries to not trade with Vietnam and uh, and Cuba. So basically, they get they isolate these countries. And what are you supposed to do if you're a tiny little island that was a backwards peasant society to begin with, and you're trying to industrialize, you're trying to advance. But the biggest powers around you are saying, no, you can't do that. How about free yourself up? Stop coercing your own citizens, and then maybe we'll be willing to not embargo you and give you the benefit of trade, and then you can progress like other countries. Uh, uh, those, the people living there would argue they're a lot more free than they were under Batista. Uh, still not as free as they ought to be. <laughs> I mean, you could, okay, well... Uh, what, you know, why are healthcare healthcare outcomes better in Cuba than they are in the United States? Um, it, they're a much poorer country. They and yet they they're able to are they everybody? Yes, well, they're a much poorer country. And and yeah, we're we're kind of jumping around, right? I mean, first let's. Um, I, I guess there's there's one question: is are they are they free? And then another question is: are they prospering? Now, I think freedom and prosperity go together. The more freedom you have, the more you're going to prosper. The less freedom you have, the less you're going to prosper. The more you're going to stagnate. Why, why, is, why is China doing so well then? Why is China so rich now? Why are they about to, to surpass the United States? They're not very free. They're very, it's I don't very... know. So I, I don't know much about China. I, I, I'm, um, but I do know that they liberalized their economy significantly in the 70s i think after mao and when Deng xiaoping was that his name um he he liberalized the economy and then they started to do much better i think i've heard billions of people have come out of poverty in china and india as well because they have freed up their economies significantly so that, i think that would explain they're a state. They're a state-managed economy, and they're also very repressive. Still, they're they're just as repressive as they were before, mm. uh, in terms of freedom of speech, um, you know, uh, even freedom of movement in that in that country. I would say they're they're just a. In, well, I, I, I would think they are. They're they're better than they were under Mao, but I think there's. I, I've heard it's gotten worse in the last few years in China, like um, it, it was. Uh, Yaron Brook is someone I've listened to on this subject. He's he's uh, an objectivist who's got a podcast, and he's visited China a number of times. And he used to go there and give talks. And I think it got to a point where the people who were hosting him uh, were were threatened in some way, and so now he he no longer goes there to give talks. I don't think uh, the people who were hosting him could host him anymore. I think they've cracked down more yeah, on um, freedoms. Society. And yet they're they're doing, you know. Well, well, yeah. I mean, you don't collapse immediately because you become regressive to a extent. There's degrees here. Okay. You can still have 
is significant. Uh, you can still be doing a lot of things right at the same time that you're doing a lot of things wrong. doesn't mean you won't be doing much better if you're more consistent about respecting freedom. <clears throat> but, you know, you're not going to collapse entirely um, because you're somewhat repressive. Well, um, Germany, I mean, Germany, Germany's economy um, exploded. I mean, I think the United States is somewhat repressive, but, you know, we're, here we are, we're... We're still going along, but I think you know we're we're doing much worse than we could be doing if we were less repressive. Uh, okay, well, I mean, again, Germany was uh, economy was uh, stagnating and under depression until Hitler came along, and he he was the, that was the most repressive state of all time, and their their economy boomed. So, uh, well, I don't think it's thanks to uh, coercive policies. I mean, if 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 Hitler's policies is what drove him to initiate a world war, I don't think that worked out too well for Germany. It, well, it, yeah, it didn't. Uh, but but the war, but the nationalizing and the state-led economy is what directly helped them uh, help their economy, but uh, boom the way it did. I mean, I don't know how you argue otherwise. They they did not have a free free market economy there. I mean, they they had privately owned businesses just like China, but they were all Hitler told them what to make. Well, maybe that that uh, was bad for their economy and is uh, part of what drove them to war. Ayn Rand has an essay called "The Roots of War," which I just read actually, and she talks about how statist uh, countries need war because they they drain their own citizens through their status policies, and then they need to attack someone else or else they're going to collapse. Whereas free countries, because their freedom allows them to be productive, they don't need war. War is inimical to their interests. They can support themselves. They can just become richer and richer. They just need to be left alone. What's it, what's but if you're a parasitical country who, who you know, your state survives on by leeching off productive people so that those people want to leave or stop producing as much, then once you run out of those victims, you need victims somewhere else to leash off of. So that, that will drive you to uh, invade some other country. What's, what's an example of a free country? Well, I think historically the U.S. is the best example. I mean, it's been more and less free at different times of its history. But I think uh, the 19th century America, especially the late 19th century America, was probably the freest it's ever been. And that was the century of uh, most peace in the world between the, uh, she points out, the end of the Napoleonic War in 1918 or 1815 and the start of World War One in uh 1914, that was a century of relative peace. I've heard it called the Pax Britannica. When you have uh, the, the, the greatest amount of uh, the closest thing to capitalism that the world has seen. You know, when people are being productive, there's no need for them to engage in wars of conquest. They're producing stuff on their own. That, okay, you, what about the, the British uh, um, opium wars? I think there was like tw some 20 million Chinese died over opium and and that was in britain was the heart of capitalism how does that make sense well i mean there's I, I don't know about the opium wars just like i don't know much about china i mean there's there are there are spots in my knowledge of history which i need to uh, improve on but um 
I, I don't I don't know that everything the uh, the British did was good for them. Just like with the Indians, as I was saying before, if there were cases where Indians were being peaceful, and then some other colonial power came in and initiated force against them, I would oppose that. So if if that's what the British were doing, then I would oppose that. And I don't think it was in the interest of the British to do that. They might have gotten some short run um, economic boost from that but in the long run i think it's a bad policy to violate rights it's not in their economic interest long range to violate rights interesting interesting not in their economic interest to violate rights now okay let's say you're i'm not so sure about that because if you are a capitalist let's say today and uh you're finding that the rates of profit in the United States and the West are uh, are are a little low for your for you. And w- if you look at the rates of pro- profit historically and right now, they are very low compared to where they where they used to be. Now, so they might, uh, in that case, want to export capital uh, and export production to a third world country where they can get uh, lower, uh, much lower labor costs, and they can also have influence and on on the governments through corruption through coups and uh you know end up in uh with very favorable conditions so you know workers are basically forced into you know mines and uh third world factories under sweatshop conditions right we kept we kept finding in the 90s that was the big expose you know nike and all these companies were these capitalist companies were you know using sweatshop labor um and you know you you may not you may say that's not coercive because these people agreed to it, but um, you you also have to understand that like a lot of the times people get recruited from third world countries and get sent to other countries to do labor and they're lied to their their passports are taken away this happens all the time because this is in the interests of these of the capitalist class to to you know. And nothing stops them. Like you know, this is a famous thing that happened in Qatar for all the stadiums they're building for, for the Olympics. They would take poor people from other countries, promise them that they'd get wages and this, that, and the other, and basically end up being sent, sending them over, taking their passports away, and then they're slave labor. Now, you could say that, that, that this makes them not good capitalists. Okay, fine. But I'm saying all the incentives are for, are there under capitalism for them to do this. And for them to build up a state apparatus that protects their interests. So, I mean, you, you could imagine a capitalism without a state somehow, I mean, in your head. But at every every turn, the most successful and the largest capitalists are always going to want to expand that state in order to reproduce the conditions favorable to them and, and to their uh, their profitability. Sweatshops. Yeah, how do we explain so that? So the um, so one thing about that is the issue of are these people being coerced, and if they're just being made an an, an offer, if they're being given an opportunity, which they can accept or reject, I don't think they are being coerced. Certainly not by the company making the opportunity. Now it might be that their own governments has been coercing them and perhaps to such an extent that they're so poor that the best opportunity they have is the one that this, this foreign company offers them. But then 
if if that's the best opportunity for them, and if it's a meager one, well, is that the fault of the company making the offer, or is it the fault of their own government, which has made their conditions so bad that getting paid a uh, dollar an hour is their best option? I I think it's I would put the blame at the feet of uh, their own government for for making their conditions so bad that well, that just, is their best offer. I just explained to you that the imperialist countries, the United States and Britain. Have histor- I mean, this you can't even deny this that they historically like will fund and bribe and uh, other countries um, and even give them loans in exchange for creating these conditions that are favorable to those Western capitalists. Like so, so I mean, you can say, oh, the, the, these uh, these third world governments are are bad; it's their fault. But they're being paid and incentivized. By the IMF, by the United States, by by the UK to do this, because all of these bad incentives are there if profit is the main motive for everything. Okay, well, I mean, if if that's the case, I don't think that is a uh, capitalist or pro freedom thing to do, and I don't think it's in the interest uh, of these companies to do it. Not in the long range interest. They seem, but they seem they seem to think it is. They all seem to think it is, and they're all profiting very well, very well off of. Well, if if I know that a company like Nike is is trying to influence the Chinese government such that the the Chinese government is more able to uh, treat treat its own people as as slaves, Mm -hmm. then I'm going to have a a bad view of Nike and I'm not going to want to patronize Nike anymore. And I mean, we we found that I'm just in the 90s and nobody stopped buying Nikes. So what does that tell you? Well, well, I don't know that that's that all these conditions I just laid out are true. I don't know if it's true that um, Nike is trying to help, uh, trying to enable slave labor. Uh, who's who's doing? And it? if it's not if it's not these big capitalists going to the why are they going to the third world if not for that? Right? Like what? what, what why maybe are, maybe be, because it's just. Cheaper labor, not slave labor, but I, I don't know that we agree on what slave labor is because I don't know that we yet agree on what coercion is. So this goes back to the earlier discussion because I, you know, sometimes socialists will use terms like wage slavery, things that I wouldn't call slavery. So I, I don't know that what you're calling slavery is the same thing that I would call slavery. So I think we have to be clear on that first. It's actually the uh, Republican Party in the United States. Um was fond of, of calling it wage slavery um, for a period uh, in the in the 19th century uh, because they saw they saw um, the exploitation of the working class the white working class as no better or not much better than than the way blacks were being exploited in the south and they because you know the American Revolution as you say was really about um, you know, there Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine and, and all these guys were you know, their goal was to create to really realize the goals of the Enlightenment and create a you know truly emancipated society for everyone. Like they believed in equality. Um, but what I'm saying is that the capitalist mode of production is is the thing that gets in the way. Is the main contradiction there? It's what prevents that that freedom from being possible and that's what marx explains uh and that's what marx explains that's why Mm -hmm. marx explains if you want to if you want to complete the revolution the american revolution the french revolution 
and, and actually have this meritocratic uh, equal society, you have to finish it with socialism because you can't do it. You will never create that kind of uh, freedom and equality and opportunity, especially opportunity is the biggest one um, under capitalism. Well, I, at this point, I think we still have different definitions of freedom because I think we still have definition, definitions of force or coercion. So to really respond to what you're saying there, uh, I think we would have to, because you're talking about freedom and how the, how we're implementing, the founders had this vision of freedom and to complete their vision of freedom, we need socialism, according to Marx. I mean, to have this discussion, that's presupposing we already agree on what this term freedom means, but I don't think we're there yet. So, um, so we can go to that issue, um, but I think it has to be addressed on that level. I can't. Um, I can't just respond. Well, to... Well, I mean, if you okay, what I'm saying is, you're you have an idea of what freedom is from Ayn Rand and what force is and what force is, and I'm saying those are the you cannot the the type of society that would produce is not um, a very nice one. It's not one that will really meaningfully produce freedom for anyone. Like if if by your definition, a homeless person on the street with with mental health issues and psychosis is free, well then then really everybody can can live in destitution under your system and be free. Um, and you know the, the, the Marxist definition of freedom, which is freedom to freedom from abstract sorry, abstract domination, freedom from um, from coerced labor. Which is, which is what capitalism is. So labor. That so you're using the term coercion that. there. Yeah, yeah. But coercion. we we have different definitions of coercion. So we're we're gonna have to talk about that. So then. okay, so I'll I'll define it. Uh, that you need to do in order to reproduce yourself to survive. So, um, a let's let's say an aristocrat from you know the 1300s, 1400s. That person is free, because that person is does not have to toil in the fields they have their own serfs to do that 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 person doesn't cook for themselves they uh they they own they just they they, they're an owning class they have us they control the surplus generated from society or generated at least from their own fiefdom they control it themselves and therefore they uh, are able to be free to let's say become a philosopher write become a scientist uh or just just lay around the house and play uh play golf um, that person is free because they, they can they, they're able to be self-directed in their own labor. They are not coerced by the need to survive, the need to eat um, by working for someone else. Can you define coercion for me? Uh, coercion would be the, the opposite of the freedom I just described. So being coerced by either a system or um, some... Yeah, it would be it would be a system in this case, but it's also it's also unfree to be to be a hunter gatherer and um, having to spend every waking moment of your life uh, moving around doing uh, doing work that reproduces that that allows you to reproduce your day to day life. Like you you need to you need to work twelve hours a day in order to just survive. That's that's unfreedom, and I, you could say that's coercion if you like. So you, you've defined freedom in terms of coercion when you said like, 
you're free when you're not being coerced. So you can't then use coer- you can't then define coercion in terms of freedom. That would be circular. So I want to know what coercion is in a non-circular way. So can you define coercion without making reference to freedom? Um, having to labor for your own survival, basically, or or because someone uh, is yeah yeah having to to labor in order to survive, and, and that can be that can be either because you uh, are out in the woods and you have uh, you or you've chosen to be out in the woods and you and you need to collect berries all day to survive, or because you are a serf working under a uh, a master a lord, or be, or if you're a worker who can't survive without the income that the boss gives you. All right. So if coercion means having to labor in order to survive, then you're coerced even if there's no one else around, even if you're on an island by yourself. This is not... So you've got to labor in order to survive. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you're coerced. But if we live in a society where you do not have to, if the, if the means of production are developed enough where nobody has to work, which our current society is that way, um, then... Uh, then, yeah, then, then working, then toiling 12 hours a day for your own survival, uh, is a form of, of, uh, of coercion when, when the, the, the productive capabilities of that society are already such that you are, you, you could be easily, um, live it, living a life where you didn't have to do any, you didn't have to do any, any work for, uh, to reproduce yourself. Okay, so you're using coercion in a way that's uh, different than the way I use Marxists it. Marxists don't use co- so, the word coercion, really. I'm, I'm just trying to fit it into your. I'm trying to fit it into your schema. Okay, but I mean, we're we're going to be talking past each other as long as we don't have the same definition of coercion, because so which we don't have. So because your definition of coercion allows that someone could be coerced even when he is alone. Mine doesn't. Um, mine requires yeah so that's so that's not that's not coercion on on the way i understand it so we've we've kind of hit a uh uh right but we uh, none of us live a point (laughs) where we we are uh we're talking different languages in a in in this respect so we have to be talking the same language to to continue here so we we can we can discuss you know what is coercion, or we can debate that whether whether you have the right understanding of coercion, or whether I have it, or whether neither of us have it. But that's what we have to debate at this Look, point. Okay, so so my, I'm, the the reason I said it that way is because I wanted a, a st- historically uh, a definition that would work, you know, all, through all time for human history. Now, in our context, um, that co- coercion really only means that in order to reproduce yourself, you do have to sell yourself to a capitalist because because someone owns all of the land all of the land is spoken for you cannot just uh, be born one day and uh, find a plot of land and start growing your own food you cannot do that everything is already swallowed up it's a privately owned so you are in fact coerced um, in our current context well we still we, if we don't agree about the island context we that's let I mean I think we should start with that because that's the simpler case. If we don't agree on that, we're not going to agree on anything else. 
So if you think someone is coerced alone on an island, and I don't, then we've already got uh, well, that, that, well, on, incompatible understanding of coercion. If there's two people on an island and one one person takes all the, co- the coconuts, then there is coercion. Um, if one if there's one person alone on the island, then uh, co- coercion is not okay. Well, I'll, I'll give you that coercion is not the right word for their situation. Um, especially because they they don't have an option of being in a society at that point. They're they're only alone. So um, you can forget that one. Okay. So then, coercion is not simply having to labor to survive. So we're throwing that definition out. Well, it, it's it's having to labor, being forced to uh, to work. Yeah, it's it's still being forced to. To, to work by a system, let's say by a system. You're using the term force. That's a synonym of coercion. You're, you're being coerced to... Uh, forced. To, you're being coerced to work for your own survival, where in, in a system where the productive capacities do not, uh, do not necessitate that. You, you, you could live in a way that uh, you don't, where you don't have to work to survive. You could, you could have self-directed work, but we don't. We're trying to understand, I'm trying to understand what your definition of coercion is. So you just use coercion in a sentence, but I'm trying to get beneath that and understand what do you mean by coercion, right? You can't explain coercion in terms of itself. So um, you had offered before this definition of coercion as having to labor to survive. And I said, no, that's, that's now off the table based on what you just said, that if you're alone on an island... You're not coerced there. So then um, you need to have some other definition of coercion if you're going to still use that term. I already talked about how, how it um, applies to, to capitalism and why capitalism is coercion. I just want to know your, your new definition, if you have one. I mean, I don't expect you to come up with one on the spot. I mean, that's already – it's a pretty significant change, I think. If if well, you're Marxist abandoning don't, again, Marxists don't don't think about it in terms of coercion. They think about it in terms of freedom, and they and, and you are that you are uh, your freedom goes you know changes by degrees throughout history. We have uh, based on the development of the means of production and the degree to which you must uh, work in order to reproduce your life, your life activity, your uh, and uh, as opposed to being free like that aristocrat I was talking about to do self-directed work, right? That is, that aristocrat is free. The worker, the serf working for him is unfree. I don't think we can talk about freedom apart from talking about coercion because at least I can't because I understand freedom in terms of coercion. So if you have this other Marxist way of understanding freedom, which uh, makes no reference to coercion, then we're talking different languages again. Okay, but okay, but, but then my point earlier was that your version of freedom and coercion, uh, or or at least that dichotomy in your in your definition of freedom, does not help you create a better society, whereas mine does explicitly. Well, we we, we can't have that discussion because you and I mean different things by freedom and coercion. Right. And I'm so if you mean your- different things by X, and you're saying X. X uh, promotes prosperity and you think X doesn't promote prosperity or the reverse, we're still talking about different things because we don't mean the same thing by X. 
But but I'm I'm saying I'm even by your definition I'm saying it doesn't like it. You don't have a better society. You just have more. You just have people not uh, literally putting hands on you. A society where people where where you can't eat or you can't you don't have the freedom to uh, travel the world or um, uh, you know uh, study at school is not. I, you know, I don't, I don't understand how you think that's better in any way than a society. Well, I, I think the opportunities are much better in the, in the society that runs on the uh, abolition of force, as I understand force. I think there's tremendous progress. I think America has become the richest country in the world, and millions of immigrants from around the world have tried to come here because of the freedom that this country has or is it because, because of, of the absence of force and because of the the, the, the rights that the unions have won the working I mean, they were coming here in the 19th century when uh, uh, because you know, there was were, free land they, they were inviting them over they, they, were, needed to, they needed to populate the land that they were kicking the Indians off it, uh, I think they were coming here significantly because of freedom the absence of force in other words as I understand force and that that absence of force is what's enabled this country to become so rich. The freedom to innovate, to use your minds, to keep the results of your own efforts. To keep the results. Okay, that's it. Uh, to, so to keep the results of your own efforts. But that isn't what happens in a, in a, in a, as a wage laborer. Right, like, like let's like to the, now you're going to go into Marxist surplus value well, stuff, like if right? You're a renter, right? If you if you're if you if you're born rich and you can own and you're able to buy things, buy buy houses and rent to people, and you know someone's born dirt poor and all of the income they have has to be spent on uh, rent because they're not able to save enough to buy a house. How is how does that equal any kind of you know freedom? And even on your definition. How does having to spend all your money on rent equal amount to freedom? Is that is that the question? Yeah, if you're, if you're working for for someone else, your your wages are going to be necessarily uh, so low that you can't buy a house on on uh, on uh, your you know as a factory worker in the in the 19th century. And and let's say you don't have you haven't had unions yet, um, so your wages are necessarily lower. I mean, you don't, you don't have a right to a certain standard of living. You have a right to not be forced, on my understanding of force. And when a country is starting out, then the standard of living is necessarily going to be low. But I think it's going to increase to the greatest possible extent if you do leave people free from force as I understand it, and that will allow the standard of living to rise. If you coerce, I mean, if you coercively take away what people have earned through taxes, they will have less incentive to work. I certainly will have less incentive to work if I know that half of my income is going to be taken away by the states. I'm not going to want, be want to work as much. Um, I want to support my own life. That's why I'm working, to make my own life better. Why has, um, you, know, you mentioned that prosperity... Um, helps um, raise everybody's uh, standard of living, right? Like freedom helps raise everyone's standard of living, as I understand freedom. 
Freedom is what correlates with prosperity. It leads to prosperity. Okay, so then, but 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 if you okay, so then prosperity in, therefore should be an indicator of freedom, should it not? If you're a very yeah. prosperous nation. Okay. So yeah. Then, so then, and I think it is. Then, then you are you why? Okay. Well, you are you the United States and China both the most free by by uh, by your equation? Are they the most free um, places on earth? Then, I, I think uh, U.S. is significantly more free. But their but their their economy is slowing a lot faster, and China is gaining on them. <clears throat> um. Maybe so. I mean, I think U.S. has lost a lot of freedom over the 20th century. I think our freedom, as I've said before, was at its peak in the 19th century, and it's been eroding with the growth of the state, FDR's New Deal, Great Society, so-called Great Society, which I think has made it a worse society, the uh, progressive movements, all the regulations. I think all that has been bad for America and has slowed us down. And meanwhile, other countries, I think, have become more free in some respects, um, or at least freer than they were, and that's allowed them to catch up. Maybe it'll allow them su- to surpass the United States, and you know, good for them if they can do it. I don't think it's uh, it's a race. I think every country should be maximally free, and it's in every country's interest for every other country to be maximally free. Um, did did the Trump tax cuts and the George Bush tax cuts did they increase freedom? Uh, I, I would think so. I don't know much about those, but sure. Yeah. Letting people keep more of their wealth is, is a way of increasing freedom. I think a lot more is necessary, like cutting spending. I think if you just, uh, reduce government revenues by cutting taxes, but you still have all the same spending programs in the place, then, um, you still have to pay for them somehow, maybe through inflation or borrowing, but that's just another way of, uh, Taking people's wealth in a more stealthy way than taxation, actually. How would um, how would eliminating Medicare or Medicaid um, how would that increase freedom for people? It would give them the the ability to choose how they spend their own money. So instead of having part of your pay paycheck automatically um, deducted for Medicare. But this is for like, retired uh, people. You, you, yeah, and you have to pay in through all your working years. You, part of your paycheck is automatically taken out to go to Medicare. But you should be free to do whatever you want with your full paycheck. It shouldn't be coercively taken away from you. So it would increase your freedom by giving you the opportunity to do whatever you want to do. Maybe invest it in the market. Maybe invest it in uh, health care just as it is now. But it should be your choice to do with it as you please. Okay, so uh, that, that's the, the market. You brought up the market. Um, crypto is uh, a lot of libertarians and, and objectivists love crypto. They love Bitcoin. Um, you know, it's deflationary currency. It's you know, it's the opposite of uh, you know the Federal Reserve. It's not you know, they can't just print money, um, and uh, it's also full of scams, as we've we've been witnessing. Um, lots of rug pulls. Now, should is it? good that people are being conned into investing in these rug pulls and losing all their money because you know they had the choice to do that they they believed in it you know it was a lot of uh a lot of libertarian type people talking about you know the uh the uh all the good aspects of a lot of these coins and uh these nft scams um and lots of people have lost their livelihoods already um and it's only the beginning of the crash um 
is and you know a gov- one might argue that government regulation on the cryptocurrency market would could have prevented this but you know but under your definition of freedom this is it's a good thing that people made a decision with their own free you know uh rational decision making and came to the conclusion that they should put all their money in in in, in loon luna coin or whatever it was and then lost their life savings well i don't say it was a good decision if they did that but i think it should be a free decision so um i know very little about bitcoin um but what i can say is i think people should be free to invest their money as they choose they shouldn't be forcibly stopped from doing that but i also think fraud if people shouldn't be able to engage in scams and frauds but there's already laws on the books to to prevent fraud that's that's not something that's so, uh consistent so with what does that tell capitalist you capitalist like there's laws in the books to prevent fraud and yet it happens anyway i mean there's always going to be fraudsters just like there's always going to be people who try to bribe but I, I think what not you try to do with this, or try to what you should try to do, is come up with a system that minimizes such things. And I don't think the way to deal with that is to legalize it and say bribery is okay or coercing people is okay. I think you should make it against the law, and then people have to revert to being covert and secretive and breaking the law, so that they they are put at war with reality, and they're always under threat of exposure, under the threat of scandal, under the threat of blackmail. Um, when this comes out into the lights, which I think uh, will happen eventually, um, the way to do it is to illegalize it, not to legalize it. And that's that's what minimizes it. But there's there's always going to be people who are acting irrationally and try to get away with stuff. How um, so you, you mentioned like you mentioned the courts, you mentioned the police and the military. Now, who's coming up with the laws, though? Do you not have to have some sort of legislative body? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, those are just the main three, I think. They're courts, military, and police. But yeah, I think you need a legislature. Um, maybe something else. So I don't know. Yeah, but uh, just to keep it simple, I think I, I usually just mention those three. Um, but there might be some other things like a legislature, but not like an entire Department of Education or. Um, Social Security bureaucracy or Medicare bureaucracy, all that is going to be gone. Um, okay, well, okay. Now, but what if, okay, so you, if you have a military and you Or regulatory agencies, all of those alphabet agencies, all those are going to be gone too. Sorry, go ahead. Um, right. But so a, mil, a military and police, they, they require, like, to have an effective military... You need people who, you need engineers, you need, you know, people who understand math and physics and uh, lots of, lots of basics, geography, even if you're, if you need people, you're going to get people to, to plan, uh, you know, invasions and plan uh, defenses and, you know, understand topography and this, that, and the other, there's a lot of education involved. So, um, what, if, if, let's say, you know, you're in a, a world that requires a military in the first place that 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 means you probably have enemies and therefore it's in your would it not be in this in your interest as the state to have an education system that will build competent that will create competent soldiers now are you going to leave that up to chance because because every country in the world was doing that and then they said well actually we we need competent soldiers so they created 
you know, a, a mass education, a public education system. I don't think you need a public education system to get competent soldiers. You need people to be educated, but that doesn't mean forcing some people to pay for other people's education because it's in, it's in the nation's interest to have a military and, uh, is it not, in, is it not to have educated people? Is it not? It, it, no, sure it is, but it's also in, it's in people's interest to have shoes, but that doesn't mean you need to start forcing people to pay for other people's shoes. Well, it seems like the state, every state in the world, which at one point had, you know, was, had capitalists, had commodity production, decided that it was in their best interest to have public education. So I'm wondering, like, like, wh why do you think that happened? Uh, uh, well, I, I don't, I haven't looked at, I know the uh, founders, at least some of them, I think Jefferson thought it was good to have some public education, at least uh, at the university level. He started the University of Virginia, where I actually went for my undergraduate. Um, but I, I think that's, that's evidence that the founders didn't have a, a perfect understanding of rights. I don't think Locke, John Locke, had a perfect understanding of rights. I mean, he thought the rights still derived from God. And even in the uh, Declaration, the the founders say that um, you know men are endowed by their creator with these rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So they had this religious view, which I think is totally wrong. I think there's a secular source of rights, which Ayn Rand identified. And um, if they had understood the uh, secular nature of rights and understood rights better than they did, I don't think they would have advocated public education, which I think has been a disaster, by the way. I mean, you have kids graduating high school these days which, who I think are terribly educated. Some of them can't read and write, um, or they have a, like a very low level, far beyond, far below their grade level, a reading and writing, can't do math. I used to tutor kids in middle school, you know, seventh, eighth graders, who, who could still not read, some of them. Um, who still can do basic arithmetic, some of them. Um, you know, they, so I, I think the ed, public education system has been a disaster, and it would be much better if it were privatized and there was the incentive of competition to put out a good product. Um, <clears throat> so that's, that's another big subject uh, unto itself, but I, I don't think, uh, I think, I mean, you can say, yeah, it's good to have an educated um, public in order to have a, a thriving, flourishing uh, society. And, um, but I don't think it's valid to leap from that. To, therefore, it's right to force people to pay for other people's education. And maybe the, the founders just didn't recognize that part of it. Just they, they, didn't, they, didn't, they weren't right about slavery. So um, they were wrong about that, and that had to be fixed. Well, I mean, to be fair to some of the founders, the, the, the left wing of the – the radical wing of the revolution were they did acknowledge that slavery was was an evil that needed to be overcome. They just realized it wasn't you they weren't going to be able to do it at this early stage um, because the southern the southern um, uh, founding fathers and the southern colonies were they were not willing to give it up um, at that early stage, and they you know they kind of actually predicted that the civil war would end up having to uh, to happen, but. Uh, Sorry, that's. I mean, that's kind of a 
Yeah, some of them had a better view on sla- slavery than others did. I don't know all the details about the various founders and what their views were, but yeah, I know is for some of them it was it was a compromise, and they thought you know this is the best we can get at this point. But um, yeah, it wasn't going to last. Your signal is gone, by the way, or your yeah, video. It's, uh, it, my camera's overheated, so oh, uh, it's kind okay. of hot in my room. I should have probably okay. uh, turned the AC on, but the AC is really loud, so it would kind of ruin the sound. But uh, Oh, I didn't hear anything. I don't know if you had it on before. But. No, I, I didn't, but it, uh, when I have it on, it's pretty loud. It's pretty close. But, I mean, we're approaching. Mm-hmm. We're about two and a half hours, so I think we should probably wrap up. Um, okay. I mean, at the end of the day, so, like, from my perspective, like, the libertarian – the libertarian view of things is like purely it's idealist, right? I, I don't think it understands um, where, you know, the material roots of the things it's talking about came from and, you know, how capitalism emerges, why it emerges um, and what its contradictions are, what its direction is. That's, that's a really important one too. Like capitalism, if you create the, if you give, the you know perfect conditions to a capitalist society. Let's say we make an island with you know libertarian fantasy island or objectivist fantasy island. Um, my argument is that you know Marx shows in Capital why capitalism ends up being exactly what it is now, and what and why actually what we have now is capitalism. It's just the natural progression of a free market unregulated capitalism to what we have now uh, and that the state is in inextricably tied with it you can't have capitalism without a state enforcing uh, and reproducing that mode of production um, and that you know libertarian the libertarian idea is is something kind of dreamed up um, on paper right it's that's it, it's abstract it's idealist it's it's a lot like the neoclassical economists uh, um, you know von Mises and Hayek um, their version of uh, you know their drawing of abstract equations and stuff that never ended up really panning out um, in the real world. But this is um, yeah. The, the, I mean, Ayn Rand in in her defense, like she she was living uh, she had living under Stalinism, which was a very brutal brutal system uh, that would, I would never advocate for. Um, but so, so I think she took an extremist position to counter that, and I think she—I mean, even Jordan Peterson uh, doesn't really see her philosophy as a you know a, a strong point. Um, and uh, you know, the, the, this uh, this idea of splitting the world into um, you know uh, coercion and, and and freedom and, and non-aggression principles. Um, and the idea that we can like make a society around around kind of a culture of, of values um, doesn't makes make sense to me because culture is a product of the of the society uh, the the way society is organized, not the other way around. You do not have a bunch of ideas and then produce a society and a mode of production out of that. You have a contra- you have material contradictions in society and um, and 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 a material base for how society is organized and the ideas uh, come out of it. They, and you have justifying ideas like the Protestant work, work ethic, for example. Um, and 
yeah and and that and and that socialism again you know to really achieve freedom for me uh is is freedom from work is freedom freedom to do to live uh life a self-directed uh life that's what makes humans 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 are able to do self-directed labor but under a capitalist society that's extremely limited um most of the, most of the work we were forced to do is for the benefit of others and it's not self-directed it's it's we need to do it to survive um we're not we're not choosing what we want to learn what we want to do in our day-to-day -day lives um at the end of the day and i think it's a lie you're lying to yourself if you you know <laughs> if you think working some job at uh uh in, in either the government or for walmart or amazon is 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 a true choice i think that's a delusion and uh socialism is the only means to actually achieve that uh a re a, a true freedom a more substantial freedom i mean the the freedom you're talking about is a type of freedom i just think it's a very surface level and uh insubstantial freedom and that uh you'd be better off thinking about freedom in a, in a, in a deeper way, in a more material way. Um, and I will let you have the final word. Okay. Well, thank you again for having me on here. I will close my, my, uh, my closing statement here. Uh, I think I'll be shorter. I'll just say, um, I do not believe we have capitalism today. Far from it. So I think it's it's um, it's a straw man to blame or to point to today's system as capitalism, and uh, say you know whatever problems we have today, look at how badly capitalism is doing. I think that's a straw man sort of approach. The way I understand capitalism, the way Ayn Rand understands capitalism, is means people are not subject to the initiation of force physical force and the closest we had to that was probably in the late 19th century in the United States. Uh, the only proper functions of governments are a military police and courts and maybe in a legislature, but that's, that's basically it. So there's a massive amount of things that government is doing today um, that it wouldn't be doing in the system. I envision following Rand's, all the taxes, all the regulations we have had that's been growing for over a century um, from the progressives to the New Deal era to the great society, so-called greats. I think all these things were moves away from genuine freedom, which I understand to be the absence of the initiation of physical force. I think this system is an ideal and is also practical and that the historical record bears it out. I think the closer a society has come to this ideal, the better it's done, the more it's prospered. The reason why millions of people have tried to flock to the shores of this country. So I think it is a practical ideal and it's got tons of historical evidence to bear it out and that I think we could do even better if we had more of it, if we were even more consistent in our respect for freedom. Unfortunately, I think we're becoming less consistent. Uh, the, the state should exist. I'm not an anarchist, but it should have a much more restricted role, restricted to the protection of individual rights, which means protecting people from force, which means protecting people from unconsensual physical contact. I think that is what 
force is, and that's a proper understanding of it. And I think that's one of the root disagreements that came up in this discussion of what exactly force is. So I'm glad that that came up because I think it exposed uh, one of the key fundamentals of political philosophy. And I invite anyone to read this book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal by Ayn Rand, to learn more about my perspective. And also, again, my, my YouTube channel, there's a lot there on uh, ethics as, as well as politics, youtube.com slash Dan Norton one. So thank you again for having me on. I appreciate it. You are welcome. Thanks for coming. And uh, yeah, that's it. Um, thanks chat for hanging out and uh, we are done. <laughs>